Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 26. I am your host, Paul Rykoff. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet, you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet, I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? And that is 16-year-old Swedish activist Greta Thunberg. And she is really angry. And she has a right to be. She's paying attention. She understands science. And she's making waves all around the world. She's amazing. She's a conscience for the world. She's the future. A future that's threatened. And that's as good a reason as any to be angry. Climate change is real. It's getting worse fast, and it's threatening the future for everyone, and especially the future for our children, and for children like Greta, and other children worldwide. And this week, Greta was joined by angry Americans all across America, and by millions of other activists all around the world. Angry Americans, angry Nigerians, Angry Swedes, angry Indians, angry Japanese. Over four million people took to the streets around the world, many of them children, in 170 countries and at over 6,000 events. And I went out in the streets to talk to them. I went to the climate strike in New York City, one of the biggest activations in the world. I walked in the march, I interviewed participants and counter protesters. Yes, there were counter-protesters, sort of, but I wanted to take you inside a movement of hundreds of thousands of angry Americans and tons of kids. I walked with them, I talked with them, and I stood in the crowd just a few hundred feet away from where Greta gave her speech, a speech that echoed immediately around the globe. It was a powerful and historic event. And I have audio for you from inside all of it. That's coming up later in the show. And as we continue to explore the state of our great American experiment throughout this show, we must explore the issue that might be the single greatest threat, not just to our country, but to all countries. A threat that is real enough to be declared a global and national emergency, not just by climate activists, not just by liberals, but also by those most notorious tree-hugging whiners of all, our military. Yep, the greatest military the planet has ever seen has been clear. Climate change is a legitimate national security threat, one that floods air bases, tosses Navy ships like toys, poisons the water around our military bases, and drains our troops in deployment after deployment of National Guard and Reserve troops to fight wildfires, fill sandbags, 
and save our fellow citizens from drowning or burning to death. The threat is real, and it's grounded not in politics, but in science. Fighting climate change can be, should be, the ultimate nonpartisan issue, and supporting science should be the same thing. The days of science fiction are terrifyingly becoming the days of science fact. Devastating storms, massive disruptions, millions hurt or dying. What used to be in movies like The Day After Tomorrow are now our new normal. Just ask the people of the Bahamas. We found something extraordinary. And of course, we have a commander-in-chief who attacks science, denies science, obstructs science, does everything he can to resist science. But there's good news. Science always wins in the end. Riders on the storm Riders on the storm Yep, science always wins. And there are some that are innovating. As the storm comes, there are riders on the storm. The people who are brave enough, smart enough, bold enough to change history through science. People like Greta Thunberg and people like our incredible guest in this episode. He's an iconic, important, and inspiring American. One who shaped what America has been in the past, is in the present, and more than any other guest we've had so far, a guest who's shaping the future. He's one of the greatest inventors of our time. The incredible Dean Kamen. American inventors have always been angry Americans. People who saw a problem and set out to fix it. From Benjamin Franklin to Thomas Edison to Elon Musk, they have seen and shaped the future through science. Just like Dean Kamen. Dean invented the Segway. If you don't know what that is, maybe you've seen a cop or two rolling around on one or a gang of tourists in New York or D.C. or New Orleans. It's been a game changer in transportation, a true innovation, and thankfully, one that never became a scourge like electric scooters. More on that with Dean later. You know I had to ask him about that. But the Segway is an electric, self-balancing human transporter with a computer-controlled gyroscopic stabilization and control system. The device is balanced on two parallel wheels and controlled by moving body weight. If you've never seen one, it's amazing. Back in the day, Dean invented the first drug infusion pump and started a company, AutoSyringe, to market and manufacture the pump. His company also holds patents for the technology used in a portable dialysis machine and an insulin pump. And now, he's created an all-terrain electric wheelchair known as the iBot. It uses many of the same gyroscopic balancing technologies that made their way into the Segway. And Dean rode into our interview on the latest version of the iBot. And he shares why it can change history, not just for the disabled, but for everyone. Much more on that. And Dean also invented the Slingshot, which is a water purification device. Powered by a Stirling engine running on a combustible fuel source, it can produce drinking water from almost any source through a vapor compression distillation. 
It has no filters, and it can operate using cow dung as fuel. The name of the machine is in reference to the slingshot used by David to defeat Goliath. It's incredible work, it's innovative, and it's the future. But before we get to Dean and the climate strike and some dudes who want to argue with me about whether or not America is awesome or great, there is plenty in America that has me angry, that has many others angry, and should really have everyone angry. There are stories you need to know about or know more about that are impacting our country in some critical ways. So let's get in the science lab, invoke our inner Bill Nye, and break down the compounds of what is happening in the weird and wild world around us. Bill Nye, the science guy. By the way, yes, of course, I hope Bill Nye will join us as a guest in a future episode. That dude is also understandably angry. So if anyone knows him or has a science class with him, slip him a note or maybe write it on a dissected frog and help us make it happen. Speaking of dissecting frogs, some accountability for a reckless president may finally be here. President Mayhem. The guy I described in past episodes as our abusive stepfather president, rampaging through the house that is America, has crashed into an entirely new section of the place we call home, a whole new wing of foreign policy. Trump had a little phone call in July, and on that phone call, he urged the Ukrainian president to investigate Joe Biden, one of his current political opponents. So to recap, the president of the United States asked the head of a foreign government a government that also buys weapons from us and depends on us to investigate his political opponent. It's just the latest Trump action that might be an impeachable offense. And this week, after the news broke, the political dam also broke. And Speaker Nancy Pelosi finally gave the green light to move forward with impeachment. The House of Representatives moving forward with an official impeachment inquiry. The president must be held accountable. No one is above the law. The actions of the Trump presidency revealed the dishonorable fact of the president's betrayal of his oath of office, betrayal of our national security, and betrayal of the integrity of our elections. Yep, it's finally happening. The final clash is here. Winter is here setting up a dramatic constitutional clash just over a year before the presidential election. So it's time to break out your abacus and warm up your math skills and start counting votes. As I record this on Wednesday night, 218 House Democrats and one independent now favor some kind of impeachment action against President Donald Trump. That's according to an NBC News tally. That's a majority of the chamber's 435 members. So it's on, folks. Also breaking tonight, CNN is reporting that the anonymous whistleblower who filed a complaint with the Intelligence Community Inspector General, which includes the allegations about Trump's conduct, has tentatively agreed to meet with congressional lawmakers. That means he or she has agreed to testify. So get your popcorn ready and brace yourself. And it looks pretty clear to me, if you read the transcripts of the call, this is not how the President of the United States should act. To argue otherwise is nothing but partisanship or self-interest. Trump must be held accountable. 
Now, he's been spinning and scrambling frantically on Twitter this week, more than usual, explaining his version of what happened and, of course, calling this a witch hunt scam by the Democrats. Well, look, the old rule in politics is always true, and especially now. If you're explaining, you're losing. Oh, by the way, the White House also mistakenly sent Trump-Ukraine talking points to Democrats. Now, I can't make this shit up. Just hours after the release Wednesday of the rough transcript of Trump's phone call with Ukrainian President Zelensky, the White House circulated an email with proposed talking points for Trump's defenders. The message was titled, quote, What You Need to Know, President Trump's Call with President Zelensky, unquote. Now, unfortunately for the White House and for America, the email was mistakenly sent not just to Republicans, but also to Democrat lawmakers and their staffs. Now, the scope and consistency of the incompetence in this administration is terrifying. Terrifying. Just imagine what they might mistakenly send to Iran or Russia or North Korea. And also just imagine how many issues we could have made bipartisan progress on if our president wasn't doing the crap he's been doing for the last three years. Infrastructure, veteran suicide and burn pits, climate change, the border, firearms reform. Think of all America could have done over the last three years if we weren't living in a world of political shit that this president has created. Leonard, if Hartman comes in here and catches us, we'll both be in a world of shit. I am in a world of shit. Yeah. Trump is in a world of shit right now, but so is America. And many are celebrating today, especially many on the left. But this is not a time for celebration. Look, I want accountability as much as the next guy or gal, but there's no reason to celebrate the possible impeachment of our president. It's sad. And it's a very dark day in a very dark period for America with many more to come. Don't celebrate. Brace yourself. We're a long way from any sunshine. Our enemies are the only ones that should be celebrating today. So don't celebrate, people. Brace yourself and get ready to do even more. No matter how all this goes, America will need us now more than ever. I've been saying it. I'm going to say it again. Stakes is high. And stakes has never been higher for 2020 and the election next year. Yep, there's no easy way out. No matter what happens, we'll all need leadership. And so it's time for a quick 2020 update. Dems seem to have interrupted the weekly eating of their own to finally focus on Trump and now his impeachment. It's a rare time of apparent unity or maybe just a ceasefire. Now, that'll, of course, end next month on October 15th for the next Dem debate hosted by CNN and New York Times. And we'll see if there's any focus on climate change at all or on science. There hasn't been one so far, really. But there's some reason to be hopeful that there might be, as news hit this week that Tulsi Gabbard qualified for the October Democratic debate. 
The Hawaii congresswoman and Iraq veteran is the 12th presidential candidate to hit the threshold for the next debate. Gabbard got 2% of support in a New Hampshire poll conducted by Monmouth University released on Tuesday. The Hawaii congresswoman previously had gotten 2% in three other DNC-approved polls, and her campaign said she racked up over 130,000 donors that she would need to make the debate stage. Now, Gabbard's from Hawaii, and she's focused often on climate change, and she'll join on that stage Joe Biden, Cory Booker, Pete Buttigieg, Julian Castro, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke, Tom Steyer, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Andrew Yang. They'll all be on stage in October. And as they hit the stage, polls are showing Elizabeth Warren is gaining ground. She now narrowly leads in the Des Moines Register CNN Iowa poll for the first time. She's rocketed to the top faster than quarterback Daniel Jones in a fantasy football league. Yeah, sidebar. Eli was benched. And the youth movement that has eluded much of American politics continues all across the NFL when it comes to QBs. And Jones was incredible for the Giants. 23 out of 36, 336 yards, four TDs, two passing and two running. And a very cool, very mature, ice water in his veins, game-winning drive. But he's surging. And so is Elizabeth Warren. Warren came in with 22%, Biden had 20%, Sanders at 11%, Buttigieg at 9%, Harris at 6%, Booker at 3%, Klobuchar at 3%, Gabbard, as we mentioned, comes in at 2%, O'Rourke still low at 2%, Tom Steyer with 2%, and Andrew Yang at 2%. Marion Williamson has fallen completely off the scoreboard and out of the spotlight faster than Antonio Brown did with the Patriots. Williamson, Brown, they're both out. Maybe they can both join the XFL or that crew of people who plan to try to storm Area 51 again next year. None of that's gone well. But beyond Gabbard, no other candidate appears likely to join the 12 who've qualified now for the October debate. Marion Williamson is the only Democratic presidential hopeful that has announced she's passed a donor threshold, but she's only hit 2% once in a DMC-approved poll. So qualification closes on October 1st. That's next week. So... Science may be in for the debate. We'll see. But science fiction and Williamson looks like it's out. Gabbard will be on the stage. She'll be the only surfer on stage. And she'll also be one of only two veterans on stage. Pete Buttigieg being the other, as we've covered at length. Which is increasingly important as we talk more about things like selling weapon systems to Ukraine. And the New York Times is reporting now that Ukraine sought U.S. missiles and halted cooperation with the Mueller investigation as a result. So the decision to stop the investigations by an anti-corruption prosecutor was handed down at a very delicate and very interesting moment for Ukraine, as the Trump administration was apparently finalizing plans to sell the country anti-tank missiles called Javelins. 210 Javelins and 35 launching units. This underscores the need for people in America to understand not only science, but engineering. But you don't have to be an engineer to see the design of the problem with this situation. You just have to be paying attention. All of us who served in the military generally know about javelins, but the rest of the world is about to learn about them. And there's one very interesting thing that they'll learn, or at least they'll learn now in this show. The javelin weapon system is made by Raytheon. Raytheon is where Secretary of Defense Esper was recently the head lobbyist. Hmm. 
So in case you weren't listening a few episodes ago, I focused on why this could potentially be a problem. Especially because in confirmation hearings, when pressed by Senator Elizabeth Warren, Esper refused to recuse himself on Raytheon matters. What could happen, right? We should trust him, right? Bullshit. I said it then, and I'll remind everyone now, Esper should have recused himself, and he probably should have been disqualified outright. The impacts of all the rubber stamps are coming back to haunt us now. The impacts of the weak Senate oversight, and the impacts of the weak levels of public engagement, and the impacts of letting this president and his crew do whatever they want. And the impacts of science are coming, and that's real. Climate change is coming, and that's bad. But robots are coming, and that could be good. But no matter how you cut it, the science is real, and the robots are real, and we're going to get into it. Dean Kamen, one of the most important inventors and creators of our time, is going to break it down and give us some hope for the future and talk about robots. And in this episode, we're taking it to the street. We're going to see science in action and see how science can change and inspire the world for the better. The future can seem grim sometimes, but in this episode, we're going to give you reason to be hopeful and excited. And of course... We're studying, analyzing, and prototyping the four eyes. It's a biology experiment of integrity. It's a physics lesson of information. It's a chemistry lab of impact. And believe it or not, it's a math class of inspiration. This is the science of America. This is the science of the future. This is the science of robots. This is Angry Americans. Episode 26. She's alive. Alive. Angry Americans everywhere. Welcome to the Manhattan Classic Car Club for definitely the most interesting, inspiring interview we've ever had. And in part because it's inspiring before we even started. And we're going to get into that in a second. But we are humbled and honored and thrilled to be joined by the great Dean Kamen, one of America's most inspiring, uh, important people, I think. Uh, Really uh, defined what it means to be I think, an inspiring American, someone who is an inventor, a creator, a builder, a communicator, an educator, as a, as a father especially. I have a newfound appreciation and respect for all that you do, Dean. But welcome to Angry Americans. Great to have you here. It is great to be here. Looking at all these beautiful works of art and works of technology, these classic sports cars here in New York, on the river. It's Great to see you. It's great to be here. So we, I got to tell folks what happened before we started. So your, your colleague, Julie, sent me a text and said, we're on our way. Dean's in the iBot and I'm running behind him. Now to set the scene, the UN convention is happening this week. Trump is in town today. So all of Manhattan traffic is gridlocked. You can't get anywhere. 
and you actually got here on your newest invention and so, and tell us what it is and why you and how you got here so we were down uh literally in tribeca and uh i just jumped in the ibot and came over and by the way there's a lot of uh, building zones along the way and interesting obstacles but nothing that is a problem for an ibot my only problem was Julie uh, was jogging, but she's not in as good shape as I thought. <laughs> so it took us an extra few minutes to get here, but we certainly got here faster than we would have gotten if we used a cab. And as a demonstration, now what, what you're sitting in, I'm going to ask you to describe in, in, in a second, but uh, we are on the second floor of a building that does not have an elevator. And you arrived in the iBot and uh you were seated it, it's it's i'm not going to call it a wheelchair it's an innovation it's it's a groundbreaking vehicle you can describe it for me but um you you demonstrated it you you rose up out of the chair in the chair to give me a hug and then used it to climb a set of stairs to come into this room that we're in now which is a, a, a driving simulator room but um, if you can, just to set the picture for folks who are listening to audio, can you describe what it is you're sitting in right now? What I'm in is what we call an iBot. It brings you to eye level, and it's kind of a robot. In fact, 20 years ago, um, it was by far uh, the most advanced uh, robotic device ever reviewed by, for instance, the Food and Drug Administration. It's all fly-by-wire. It's full of gyroscopes and accelerometers. And the basic idea was, could we put enough gyros, accelerometers, sensors, computers, actuators in a system that would safely take the load of a full-grown human being, bring them up to eye level, and leave that system on two points on the ground, like two toes of a ballerina, because it's balancing. It doesn't depend on having a great big long wheelbase like a wheelchair or a car would have. It's up on two points. And you'd say, why bother? Well, while that's much harder to do than be statically stable on the ground, once you solve that problem, which took us a decade, now that you're on a very small wheelbase on the ground, your footprint is two points, then every stare you see is just one more flat space. Uh, so you can climb stairs the same way a person does. You don't turn your body at 45 degrees perpendicular to the stairway, you'd fall on your head. You're vertical as you come to the stairs and you're vertical on the stairs. You just go from one vertical plane every six inches to the next. We recognized more than 20 years ago, if we could simulate human balance and give a person a stable way to maintain themselves, even though their footprint is no larger than a foot, 12 inches. If we could do that, we could make a device that could enable a person to navigate all the architected environments you and I take for granted. And then we could have the thing come down to a four-wheel drive mode on a couple of these things, but still maintaining the balance capability of always keeping the person's weight above those points. And with that four-wheel drive, it can climb sand dunes. It can go through snow drifts. Nothing, virtually nothing that you'd want to walk through will stop it. We'll seal it. We'll let it go through six inches of mud and water. And so we spent years building a device that would essentially return to a person that can't stand up and can't walk 
a couple of very important things. The public, I don't think, realizes a lot of this. One of the important things we return to people is the ability to access wherever we want to go. It gives them certainly independence and access. It does all of that. What most people don't realize is the users of an iBot, almost without exception, will tell you the biggest thing that an iBot gives them back isn't access, it's dignity. They stand up, they can look you in the eye, and they're in a crowded place and there's conversation going on among their peers. They're not isolated, they're not down looking at everybody's navel. They can hear, they can see, they can interact. Think about our language. Stand on your own two feet. He's taken his first steps. Look him in the eye. Well, how do you do any of those things in a wheelchair? And by the way, go ask your mother what she remembers about you as a little kid. And she'll probably tell you two things like every other mother. What I remember most about little Paul, his first words and his first steps. Mm. It's a unique and big deal that humans walk erect and we talk. When somebody loses the ability to stand up, maybe a vet that left his legs in Afghanistan on an IED, or 40 years ago, a vet that left his legs on a landmine in Vietnam, they come back. And when we put them in a wheelchair, we're telling them, oh, that curb, think of it as the bars on a cell. Oh, that staircase, don't even think about that at all. Oh, living in the house you used to live in and getting around, that's no longer feasible. But most of all, we tell them, you'll never be at eye level with your wife. You'll never be able to look your friends in the eye. No, you're down there and you are, you, you've been isolated. That's got to stop. And what an iBot does is it gives people back not just mobility, it gives them back that uniquely human capability to stand up. And the dignity. That, that, that's really, as soon as you and I started to have this conversation, people in the club stopped and turned to look, what is that? Who is that guy? And then you, you made your way up the stairs at a pace that was, at first, my, my initial reaction was, oh, okay, it's very methodical. It almost felt slow. And then I thought to myself, that's actually how an older person might go up the stairs. It's that pace, right? Which actually made it more deliberate. You had to concentrate a little bit, right? It wasn't just a passive thing. You didn't just glide up, but you worked your way up to the stairs and got to the top of the stairs. And I asked you to demonstrate it again, where you gave me a hug. You were able, when I went to first give you a hug today, you stopped, you said, hold on. And you raised the iBot up so you would be at my eye level, which having worked in the veterans community, having worked around so many people that have been in wheelchairs, I know how powerful that is and how that gives them that dignity. And it's really, really inspiring. I mean, you, every time I'm around you, Dean, I feel like I'm seeing the future. And you see the future before other people did. But the entrance you made is really, really extraordinary. And, and part of why I wanted this show to be a conversation about what's happening in America um, and why I'm always so excited to be around you. But I also, being Angry Americans, we have, a, we have a drink to start the conversation. And I told you there would be a drink, and there is beer. So um, what I asked uh, Julie what you prefer, but what is your drink of choice, Dean? As you're doing all this innovative work, uh, you also live a pretty amazing life in New England, in New Hampshire. Maybe we'll get into that. But what is your drink of choice, Dean Kamen? Well, I like beer. It's... Uh... It's just a really good, safe thing to drink. 
it's to me it's the most important food group right it's got <laughs> calories it's a little bit of a sedative with the alcohol it's got carbs i could use some of them uh, it doesn't have a lot of sugar so what i love about beer is when it's good it's great when it's bad it's pretty good <laughs> <laughs> and we're drinking a guinness and you told me it was it was a pretty decent guinness cheers to you dean cheers. to the ibot now you and i met years ago um because of my work at IABA in the advocacy world and i think you know i don't know how it came to be but i was introduced to your work and i, I knew about the segway you are the inventor of the segway you've invented many other innovative things i don't even know how to describe them but they're they're game-changing things like the the slingshot which turns basically any water into clean drinking water but you were working uh with or around darpa and maybe for folks who aren't from the military community can you explain what darpa is and maybe whatever you were able the work that you were doing with them a decade ago and since so darpa is kind of the advanced a group of people that work on projects that are too risky for everybody else for the military. DARPA is the Defense Advanced, you know, research program. And, you know, they're credited over the last decades with inventing everything from uh, GPS to almost all the advanced technologies that we now take for granted that would have been too risky for the rest of government or industry to do. DARPA does them. And they came to me and said, you know, the military has always been in the forefront of medical uh, breakthroughs. Most people don't realize that. They pointed out that even in the Civil War, it was the military that figured out essentially how to practically deploy things like antiseptics so that you know, bullet wounds wouldn't cause gangrene and, and eventually death. They invented better ways to anesthetize people during sadly, the many surgeries people needed. And they made practical um, prosthetic limbs. But there I sit, 150 years after the end of the Civil War, with a colonel who's come up to visit me in New Hampshire. And by the way, besides being a full colonel, he happens to be a neurosurgeon. And he's sitting in my office in New Hampshire getting very passionate and saying, but Dean, it's great that during the Civil War in the 1860s, they would take an arm off a guy that was getting infected because of a lead musket ball and they would surgically remove it, an advanced technique back then, save the soldier's life, but they would give him a wooden stick with a hook on the end as a replacement. He said, that was pretty good in 1860. He said, now I've got young soldiers coming back from Iraq, from Afghanistan, and we don't give them muskets. We give them $100 million F-35. We give them all sorts of advanced stuff. But when they have to go crawling around in those caves and they come across an IED that might take off an arm or two, we bring them back. We keep them alive. We do great triage. And we don't give them a wooden stick with a hook on it. No. We give them a plastic stick with a hook on it. Mm. And he said, you are going to give me something that I can give these young folks. And he didn't come with 1,200 pages of, you know, that classic, they always say government. He says, you're going to give me something so that when I bring one of these folks in here, I'm going to put them at this conference table and I'm going to put a raisin on this table and a grape. 
And the first thing they're going to do is pick up that raisin. So now he wants fine motor control. You can't do that with a hook. And they're going to pick that raisin up and eat it. So he needs to be able to flex at the wrist, at the elbow, abduct and flex at the shoulder. So then they're going to pick up the grape. And they're not going to crush it. Oh, now he needs afferent, efferent, haptic response. They need to know and touch and feel and pressure. And they're going to eat that grape too. And by the way, the thing you give me, it's not going to be any bigger or heavier than the original equipment, the arm that they used to have. And it's going to be able to do all these things for them. And I told him, really? You're nuts. <laughs> but Colonel Lang wasn't nuts. He's a brilliant surgeon. He's a passionate soldier. And he told me we need to do this. And I said, great, we'll do it. Mostly because he hit me below the belt. He says to me, Dean, the good news is there's a very small group of folks relative to the whole country that need one of these devices. But Dean, the way IEDs work, a small set of that small group didn't lose an arm. They lost two. Mm. Now, I don't know how well you deal with losing an arm, but compared to losing two, right. that would seem like an inconvenience. After telling him I thought he was nuts and that would be really hard and making all that happen and putting all those sensors and actuators together, I went home that night thinking, I've got my water project. I've got my first program for kids. I've got all that I can handle with my nights and weekends. And in my day job, I got hundreds of engineers working on dialysis equipment and all. How am I going to do this? But I rolled around in bed that night, reliving that conversation I had with Colonel Ling. And I started thinking, how do you roll around in bed with no arms? Mm. So I decided the next day to call him up and said, we're going to give you a solution that you asked for. We called the project Luke, as in Luke Skywalker, who you might remember from the first episode, turns out to have had a prosthetic arm. Right. And we spent a couple of years and we built for DARPA a prosthetic arm. And we got it approved by the FDA and we've got them on soldiers now and it's transforming what they can do. And boy, it's a little better than a plastic stick with a hook on it. It's it's absolutely incredible. I remember the first time I saw them to have someone have the ability to shake your hand. You know, again, going back to the, the dignity piece, shake your hand and not and not crush it, right? To be able to open a door, to be able to pick up your child, right? The things that so many people take for granted, the Luke does that, and I've seen it in action. I remember the first time I saw one, and, and I watched a room of vets and soldiers just captivated by this. But there, there's there's always a sense. Uh, of, of wonder on everyone's face and I think a sense of satisfaction on the face of, of the veteran but I always watch the family members and I see the face that they have where you can see that now they can pick up their children now they can do things they have a sense of independence that they never had before and there's the old saying that the only victor in war is medicine and I think that is if there is a silver lining of the last almost two decades of war is these incredible innovations that you've been at at the forefront of. But you for you, Dean, it's more than just a challenge. It's a sense of patriotism. Right. Can you talk about that and maybe where it comes from? You know, your backstory, you grew up in the New York area and you've now risen to global recognition. Uh, you've been successful in business and in science and in education. But but where does this come from, Dean? So I don't know where, where certain kinds of drive and 
purpose come from? I'll tell you, my dad was a very humble guy. He's not a scientist, he's an artist. But my dad had a two-year all-expense-paid vacation to the Philippines from 1943 to 1945. And he came back from World War II, like all the other vets, and just went about life, realizing how good life would be when you're not at war. He was a young guy that came back, married my mom. They were married for nearly 60 years until he passed at nearly 90. But I noticed in my father, in my uncles, in all the people that were adults when I was growing up, they had a commitment and they appreciated what they did for each other. And I think a lot of kids, but not all kids, could appreciate what they did for us. As I grew up, I didn't end up being asked to take a two-year all-expense-paid trip to Vietnam or anywhere like that. But I watched people of my generation do it. And I thought that whatever I could do to demonstrate that I also feel a commitment to this country and to the people that do what they do, uh, I, I would do it. And it turned out that I've spent most of my life building medical equipment. So when I was asked to take the specific task of let's go build a piece of medical equipment that while it might be useful to lots of other people in the population, will design it to meet the needs of the military. DARPA asked me to do it. Frankly, besides being a technical challenge, we were honored to do it. And when we had the first ones ready to get some feedback, I took a whole bunch of my team down to Walter Reed. And we visited a hospital there and we met all these young people and we showed them this arm. And before we walked in, I told all my guys, look, I know we're engineers and scientists and physicists and tool makers, but this is where the rubber meets the road. Now you're going to see what we do. But you need to know we're going to see a lot of young people, some of whom have been very, very, very recently brought back here from Landstuhl, from Germany. They still may have open wounds and you don't want to be squeamish. But more than that, they'll have emotional wounds. And we need to let them know that we're here to help them. And we need to give them some sense that life's going to get better and we're going to give them support. And I, and I sort of lectured my engineers, you better be prepared to be positive and don't be down. And, and they all said, oh, of course. I was so wrong. I've spent most of my life visiting hospitals, whether it's with dialysis equipment or other things we make. And frankly, you see a lot of people, many of them, you know, fairly mature, um, and no matter what, sometimes they're grumpy or angry. They want to know why they, their knees don't work as well as they used to. They don't want just to fix that knee. They want to play tennis. They don't want to have their eyes work because they wear glasses. They want to, you know, basically, people expect great things, and when they don't get it, they're grumpy, even if they're 70 or 80 or 90 years old, right? That's what you see in a hospital. You don't see a lot of happy, enthusiastic people. So I was warning my guys, look, you're going to see a lot of young guys, maybe some special forces guys cut down in their prime. And there's this guy that has a neck bigger and stronger than my whole body, but he doesn't have legs. He's going to be pretty bummed out, right? 
So I give them this little pep talk. We go into Walter Reed. And one after another, as we talk to all these young guys, oh, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. You know, we're asking, which would you like, faster action or more force? Oh, that would be good. And finally, after probably an hour of meeting all these young people that just seem to be positive and enthusiastic and, and, and optimistic, and they kept thanking us at the end of every sentence. Said, yes, sir, yes. I said, will you please stop thanking us? We're, compared to what you've done, we're, we're here to thank you and show respect for you and show that we're going to help you. Oh, well, thank you for that, sir. <laughs> they couldn't help it. But by the end of that meeting, I realized we weren't there to cheer them up and inspire them. These people were inspiring my engineers mm -hmm. to do more, to do it better, to do it faster. But it's an extraordinary group of people. And sadly, most of America has no sense of how small that group of people is, how committed that group of people is, and how much we owe that group of people. I think that's right. I think that's right. And I think what, one of the things I've learned from you is that your innovations in many ways to me, once you see them, the, the wonder and the impact of them are obvious, but the path toward acceptance is not. And I want to I wanna get into the bureaucracy and, and the frustration that you sometimes face. But before I do, I want to ask you one of the, the core angry Americans questions. I mentioned it to you on the way in. We're in this place that's surrounded by innovation. You've lived so much of your career on things with wheels and things with motors and things that go. Dean Kamen, what was your first car? <laughs> so at the age of about, uh, I don't know, 17, whatever, you can get a driver's license. I got a driver's license, a monumental day. But I didn't have the money to buy a new car, and I wasn't going to take money from my parents. My mom's a public school teacher here. My dad's an artist. But um, I went off to a junkyard, and I bought for back then, which was a lot of money to me, $275. I bought, even back then, it was an old sports car, an old 1963 Triumph TR3. And it had a few problems like, you know, no muffler. And, but we, we hauled it home and we spent a summer rebuilding it. And I drove it for years. And it was a beautiful little machine. Wow. Do you remember what color it was? When I got it, it looked like a chameleon. It was rusty. It was green. It was yellow. It was red. Um, we, uh, we, we painted it ourselves. And it wasn't my finest bit of work. We painted it British Racing Green. And we bought some seats out of a newer model TR4, modified the base so we could pluck it in there. So I had this little hermaphrodite uh, sports car, TR4 seats, TR3 mostly, and we rebuilt it and we kept it running for years. Wow. And where were you living at that time in your life? I was going up and back between Long Island, where my, at my parents' house, and Worcester, Mass. I was at Worcester Polytech at the time. So did you know at that point in your, in your life when you were 17 that this is what you were wanted to do and meant to do? At what point did that click where you knew? Because so, so much of the work you do is also focused on the next generation. And I want to get to your, the Lego work and other work that you've done that I think is so inspiring. But you know, for folks who are listening, we, we have people who come from all backgrounds, all over the world, all different age groups. 
but th- was there a moment, you know, for people who are either parents or maybe they're students, that was pivotal for you, Dean, in, in shaping this trajectory that you would go on? So this may sound corny, but it's true. Uh, I had a dad who was not one of these pontificating, overbearing dads. In fact, if you asked me, other than what I'm now going to tell you, what advice did you get throughout your life from your dad? Not a lot. My father was a very quiet guy. He was born an artist. He was born an artist. Uh, he was an illustrator for all the comic books of my day. Yeah. Um, he ended up being the art director for the first, you know, uh, uh, illustrated encyclopedias. He Worked did, at, did he work at Mad Magazine? He did worked I read that for well? EC Comics, yeah. Tale, Tales from the Crypt, Shock, Horror, Suspense, Mad. Oh, he's a genuine card-carrying real illustrator. But as a young kid, I'd watch him at his easel every day. He would take the Long Island Railroad here into the city, deliver his stuff, come home. After dinner, we'd go out and play. He'd go up and do more work. And one day, I think it was a weekend, I was still very young. We got up, we're gonna go out in the yard and play and the other kids are out playing and their moms and certainly the dads are out playing with them. You know, they were typical, you know, suburban. So they were the, the accountants and the lawyers and the marketing and the business guys that didn't take the Long Island Railroad. It was a weekend, they're out playing. My father is sitting at his easel and I go up and he's not doing his day job, he's painting. He wasn't doing illustration. He was painting. But I said, you know, I feel sorry for you because all the other dads get finished with work during the week and they're done. You're always sitting here at your easel. My father put down his pen. I'll never forget this. And he turns to me and said, don't feel sorry for me, Dean. You should feel sorry for all those dads. Because as you just pointed out to him, they go off to work. Every day they go off to work. And they only get to play Saturday morning. He said, I love what I do. And I do it all day. And that's why when Saturday comes, I just, I'm here. And he, he looked at me and he said, you need to find something that you love to do. And you need to make yourself so good at it that you can make a living doing it. And then you'll be happy. And if you're happy, you can make your friends and your family happy. The most important thing you need to do is find something that you would do whether you were getting paid to do it or not. It's not a job. And I thought long and hard about that. Well, a number of years later, I had to repeat that story to my dad because I was off at school now, I have an older brother who's a doctor, 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 MD, PhD, mm-hmm. my mom's favorite son, her first son, and he's a doctor, doctor. And I'm struggling in school. I never like being told what to do by teachers, parents, or anybody else. I'm trying to learn as much as I can, physics, math, engineering. I'm trying to work on stuff for my brother. Finally, going to classes and doing some of the required stuff that I didn't see was a straight line to the skills I wanted to develop. I finally said, uh, I'm going to take a little time, run my little business, and I'm probably not going to graduate. Well, when I told my mom, a teacher, I'm not going to graduate, or at least not on time, she was not happy. So I figured I'd go get my dad to help me out, Mm -hmm. and he wasn't happy. (laughs) And I looked at him and said, 
You're the guy that told me, find something I want to do, something that I can get good enough at, that I can make a living doing it. And I said, Father, I have no artistic skill. I can't do what you do. I can't draw a straight line with an edge. But I can design solutions to real problems. And as I'm picking up the skill sets of electrical and mechanical engineering, and as I'm learning more of the basic physics and I'm learning more of the basic math, I can apply these things in a way that can help people, that I can do professionally, and I'm committed to it. That's what I'm going to do. And he just looked at me and I said, you told me to go find something. Mm. I did. Mm. And as they say, the rest is history. I, I did quit school, but a number of years later, I went back. They gave me an honorary PhD. I was their commencement speaker. And I've now collected some of those honorary PhDs and, and commencements. And I've got a wall covered with, with uh, recognition for that. <laughs> you've got quite a few, quite a few. But you've always done it you know, your way, you've seen a path, even, you know, your entire operation is headquartered in New Hampshire, right? Which I love New Hampshire. I think it's an incredible place. I love New England, but, but that's a, a different choice, right? Some people might've been in Northern Virginia or somewhere else. You, you've been able to carve out a path that you see as, as a path to the future, but it hasn't been without obstacles. And even coming in here, you were telling me that you wanted my help in, in trying to overcome some of those obstacles. But you created the segue. You created so many innovations that have changed the world, but yet you still face friction. So maybe this is, is the answer. It may not be. But Dean Kamen, what makes you angry? Well, you, you pointed out that I moved to New Hampshire. And I think people think this is folklore, but it's the absolute truth. I grew up in New York. I love New York. I mean, look at this place. There aren't too many cities like New York. But when I started my business down here in my parents' basement, there was one set of regulations after another. And then I started realizing as I needed to hire people to help me, young people that have degrees in electrical or mechanical engineering are not likely to want to move here. You know, if you're in the banking business, maybe, or in the media business, you can do that. But... I remembered being every weekend going into Boston to visit my brother who was doing a guest residency up at Children's Hospital. And he would take me out to the car to put me back on what was then the Eastern shuttle to fly back to New York. And I'd see a lot of the cars in the parking lot at Children's Hospital in Boston. And most of them were Massachusetts. But a few of them would say New Hampshire. I'd never been to New Hampshire in my life, but under every license plate that at the top said New Hampshire, the bottom said, Live free or die. And I was getting so fed up with the unnecessary processes that had been put in place that did nothing more than slow down progress or make it more expensive. I said to my brother as we were getting into the car, how far away is New Hampshire? And he said, uh, I've not been there either, Dean. He was at Yale at med school in Connecticut. We grew up in there. And he said, can't be very far. So I said, Let's go. And instead of going through the tunnel to go back to the airport, we drove north. And we very, within a half an hour, we saw this big sign that said, welcome to New Hampshire. And we visited, we got off the highway, we looked around and I said, I think before I get so tangled up and can't move, I should take my little group of people up to New Hampshire and we'll build our future here. But people ask, why did you move to New Hampshire? And my serious answer is, 
because the license plates say live free or die. And that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's inspiring. And I've, I've read about what you've built there um, and how inspiring it is and how it's become kind of a beacon for folks who are looking to make that impact and who share that spirit. And I think it's a very grounded, there's so many pieces of New Hampshire that are about kind of the foundations of this country and inventors are always really a foundation of this country. And you have that classical spirit of the great American in, in, inventors, but um, Washington DC can kind of be the place where good ideas go to die. So how do you we'll talk about where you are now with your projects, where you are with, with the iBot in particular? You're here in New York for a reason, if you can share that. Um, but what, what, are you, what are you doing now and where are you focused now? So in the very exciting side of what I'm doing now, and again, I have to credit the United States Department of Defense for this one. A couple of years ago, the Department of Defense no noticed and, and is very well aware, and I had this very frank discussion, including with people like the Secretary of Defense, hey, um, for at least two or three decades now, the incredible results of basic research at, in med schools and in research labs around the country has really advanced our understanding of, of biology and medicine and life itself, that we have no shortage of of miracles in roller bottles and petri dishes at at universities at med schools and you can go to this one or that one whether across the country from harvard to stanford to ucsd to baylor you you cross the country and you can visit lab after lab and this this professor will show you in that petri dish i was able to make these cells produce insulin i'm, I'm i could cure diabetes I'd love to put myself out of the pump business by giving everybody a new pancreas. And in this med school, in this lab, hey, look, put a probe in there and I get an electrical signal. They're making working neurons. And in this one, they're making cells that are a functioning nephron, a kidney. And all of these advances are just breathtaking. They, were, they would have been science fiction 20 years ago. But there I am at the Pentagon being told, but Dean, there's 20 years ago, they were showing pictures of a human ear being grown on the back of a mouse. That's a pretty famous picture. The public has seen it. Right. And they're saying, but Dean, more and more great research is coming out. But where do we see? They're not making kidneys. They're not making livers. They're not making a pancreas. They're not making lungs. That's, that's an engineering problem. That's a manufacturing process. That's not basic research. And they said... So we, the Department of Defense, not the National Science Foundation, not the National Institutes of Health, not the ones that are great at funding this long-term basic research and, 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 and medical research. No, we want to fund the ability to take these miracles out of the laboratory and bring them to scale. We want to bring the engineering manufacturing community to the table to help transition these things from being essentially science fair projects to replacement organs and particularly it was the department of defense saying we need skin we need bone we need cartilage we uniquely need a lot more than maybe the general public does but we need to turn it into high volume and we need it soon and they ended up putting a program together we were asked to bid on it we won it for in excess of 80 million dollars we got it matched by 
in excess of $200 million from industry. And it's been about two years. And I'm really excited to tell you that, oh, a little over a month ago, in a completely closed system, uh, we started to demonstrate what we told him. I told him within five years, we would be able to demonstrate a process that would essentially be a platform, an engineering manufacturing platform of the technologies necessary to manufacture replacement human organs. Now, we're nowhere near full organs yet, but last month we demonstrated a closed system that manufactured a seven centimeter long segment of bone ligament bone that would be ready to start doing the biological uh, work on. And I think, as we told them back then, within five years, we're gonna have a platform that is capable of bringing to scale some critically needed subsystems of full organs and we're gonna transform healthcare with that. It not only will give patients way better outcomes, but it will lower the cost of medicine. Nobody wants to be chronically treated with dialysis every other day. I make that equipment. Nobody wants to have to wear an insulin pump. I make those. Nobody wants these chronic treatments, but the alternative is without them, you're gonna die, you accept them. But if you went to a little kid and said, do you wanna keep pricking your finger and checking your glucose and where, or would you like to just have a new pancreas? and be done with this. Would you, would you go to a patient that doesn't have working kidneys and say, do you like going to a dialysis center every other day to stay alive, or would you like a new kidney? We believe that if we could give people replacement organs as a cure as opposed to a chronic treatment, we will dramatically lower the cost of healthcare, dramatically improve the quality of life for these people, and change the future. And we are, that's one of my day job projects. Wow. Every one of your day job projects is mind blowing, man. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, really incredible. Every time I see you, you're working on a new thing that will literally change the face of humanity, change the face of science, change the face of our world, and now literally change the face of, of people's lives. Um, but I, this show, we've been covering so much about what's happening in the political world. You're operating in a place of inspiration and hope and, and, and innovation. And then politics seems so divided, so stuck. You know, they, recently here in New York and around the world, hundreds of thousands, millions of kids organized to, uh, to bring awareness to, to climate change. So as a, as a scientist and as a, as a problem solver... I guess a two-part question. One is, what are your thoughts on the recent climate strike and this movement of young people? And then what, what, are, the state, what are your broader thoughts on the state of affairs in America, just as a leader, as an innovator, as someone who I think brings a positivity and tone to everything at a time when we're divided? What are your thoughts on where we sit as a, as a nation right now, Dean? Well, sadly, I think today, and the same thing I thought 30 years ago when I started a not-for-profit organization called FIRST, and first uh, is an acronym for inspiration and recognition of science and technology. You notice the word education's not in there. 30 years ago, when this country was totally convinced, and I mean our, our president, our corporate leaders, everybody was convinced we have an education crisis because we were producing far too many scientists, far too few scientists and engineers. Uh, and they said, oh, it's an education problem. As I pointed out, my mom's a teacher. Mm. There's a lot of dedicated teachers in the country. I don't know anybody that can't think fondly about some experience they had. So to suddenly 
decide that the fact that we're not producing a lot of scientists and engineers, to suddenly decide that women, young girls, never seem to go in any reasonable portion into engineering and study math or science, even at, in grade schools and middle schools. To suddenly decide all of that is an education crisis, I thought, is a substantial misdiagnosis of a much bigger problem. And I'm an inventor. What do inventors do? Inventors look at the same problems as everybody else, but see them differently. And I sat there, and it was an epiphany to me. I said, you know what? It's probably not an education problem. It's a culture problem. It's not what we don't have enough of great teachers, great schools, great education. We spend a lot of money on K through 12 education in this country. I said, it's not what we don't have enough. It's what we have too much of. Because we become such a rich country, we have something that I've never fully understood. We invented it in this country. We call it leisure time. I've never had any of it. But we have a country that has made superheroes out of people in the NFL, the NBA, the MLB. And there's nothing wrong with that. When you're a rich country, you can afford a lot of things that the poor can't. You can afford art. You can afford a lot of sports. But I realized that our culture had gone so far that particularly young girls uh, and minorities, the only thing they see in our media, the only role models that are young people that, that are happy and smiling are professional athletes or professional entertainers. And you could walk out on the streets today, 30 years later in New York, and every kid on that street can tell you the name of some famous living football player or basketball player, and that's great, and somebody from Hollywood. But they know about the Super Bowl, the World Series, the Academy Awards. Can they tell you the name of a famous living scientist or engineer or inventor? Do the girls know that there are millions of jobs out there for young kids that develop the muscle hanging between their ears? Most of these kids grow up thinking, if I work really hard and I spend 10 hours a week bouncing a ball, I'll be in the NBA or I'll be in the NFL. And then they don't develop the core skills they'll need for all the exciting careers of the future. So 30 years ago, I said, hey, wait a minute. If it's really a culture problem, not an education problem, that's great news. Because we know what gets kids passionate to excel at something. Make a sport out of it. Get it out of the classroom. Don't make it something where the teacher's judgmental like they are during class, but that same teacher at four o'clock turns his or her hat around and goes out with those same kids, but is now the coach. And instead of having to give them a red mark and tell them it's a D or an F, no, after class when they miss the ball or drop, oh, we'll help you. It was a lucky catch. But suddenly you realize that everything about our whole education system, in fact, makes sports, makes entertainment. Our whole culture makes that so exciting to kids. It allows for the failures. It allows for the nurturing of a coach. In fact, I was always amazed once I started first and you know, I'd say to people, you gotta let the teachers do this after school and there shouldn't be grades. Well, what do you mean? And I would compare it to what they're supposed to be doing in class and I said, a lot of people thought I was picking on sports. I said, picking on it? What do they say? Uh, imitation is the highest form of flattery. I built first around the sports model. And by the way, the way you all justify sports is you say, well, it's important that they learn teamwork. Well, if it's so important that they learn teamwork, why when they do it in the classroom, do you call it cheating? Mm -hmm. So I said, look, we're going to just take everything we know that makes kids passionate and we'll wrap it around the things they need to become really good at. 
And in a free culture where you get the best of what you celebrate, we've got to start celebrating kids that want to develop that muscle hanging between their ears. We've got to start celebrating the world of science and technology. And we've got to show kids that it's every bit as accessible, every bit as rewarding and way more likely to lead to careers for them than just about any other activity. So let's put it in the right context and let's go. And 30 years ago, I got some superstars and role models from industry, 23 different companies lent me some young, enthusiastic engineers to adopt a local school. Typically, I asked those companies, find a school where the kids have never met a scientist or engineer, where their dropout rates are high, and show them that we're going to make this robotic building exercise a short, intense season like football or basketball. We'll make it every bit as exciting. And it doesn't end with quizzes and tests and final exams. It ends with a double elimination tournament and trophies and bring the school band and bring the mascots. Well, by year two, we had nearly 50, then 100, then 200. In our 30th year, we have 72,000 schools and our season, our March Madness season, had 173 cities holding events for all of these kids. And at the end of the season in April, our championship filled the 50,000-seat domed arena in Houston. That was only half the teams that made it to the finals. So four days later, the other half went to Tiger Stadium in Detroit. And between the two cities, we had 100,000 screaming kids and parents and teachers and mentors, 3,700 corporate sponsors, 200 universities that handed out $80 million in scholarships. And we're proving and by the way, 60% of our school teams were from Title I schools. And this year, something like 60% of all the new rookie teams had a majority of girls or were captained by a girl. So, so first is becoming, uh, I think, part of the culture in a very meaningful way that I hope will help shape the future. And by the way, most of these kids aren't going to become professional scientists or engineers. They don't need to be. But they need to embrace science and technology. They need to be able to separate fact from nonsense. They need, if they go into politics, for instance, or into government, if they can't understand the value of technology or the concerns we ought to have about it, they can't do a good job. They can't be a responsible leader. And these days, uh, you, it's really a concern to me that when you go to Washington, you see a lot of people that have the authority to make a lot of decisions that will affect a lot of people's lives, but they don't fully understand the impact that technology is bringing to the world. And you ask me what makes me angry or frustrated? What makes me angry and frustrated is it might take as long to get appropriate recognition by the various government agencies like CMS that you need to make the iBot available to people. It could take as long to get them to get to the right place as it took us to design and develop the technology. And that's sad and that's unnecessary. We need leadership in Washington that can appreciate the value of technology and look at it across the whole life cycle of the technology and its impact on people. But certainly making an iBot available to somebody that can benefit from it Instead of saying, well, it's got motors, it's got wheels, it's a motorized wheelchair. We'll reimburse it like a motorized wheelchair. That is, that is a terrifyingly oversimplistic view. And that could deprive particularly veterans from something that they need and they certainly deserve. Mm. 
There's so much to digest out of that, Dean, that you need to take a sip of that Guinness. I'm going to take a sip. People are going to take a deep breath. When you were telling me that story about first, you were unfolding a, a 2019 spectator schedule that actually has all the cities and, and countries around the world, Turkey, the U.S., Israel, um, you know, hundreds, it looks like, of, of cities and towns that culminate in this great championship. This, and this is a robotics competition, right? This is what, what, uh, what, what, what looks like, you know, sports, right? It looks like college sports, but it's finally given the recognition and the resources and the sparkle and the excitement and the energy that I think it, it deserves. Is, is first your greatest invention? I think first will have absolutely the largest legacy of anything I've ever worked on because it's really not about robots. I've been telling people that for 30 years. We are not using kids to build robots. We're using robots to build kids. And in the 1940s, that's awesome. That's awesome. in the 1940s, when the world was in one of its episodes of self-destruction, it was the president of the United States, Franklin Roosevelt, that said, it's pretty clear we cannot build the future for our kids. We better build our kids for the future. Mm. And I looked at the way technology is moving so quickly over the last 30 years, and I realized back then, if we don't get more kids to have a way to appreciate and understand and participate in the advances and, and the new careers that are being created by technology, if they're not on that bus, they'll be under it. Mm. And, and I think we have now started to get more recognition for that. But, but as I said, we, we are not using kids to build robots. We're using robots to build kids. Mm. And the, the, the corroboration that they have and the understanding that it gives them about the power of problem solving and of technology and the need for innovation I think first is absolutely mm. the most important thing I've done. Because people say to me, what is first really about? And I say, you know, first is curing cancer. First is eliminating global warming. First is, and I go down, th so what are you talking about? It's kids playing with robots. No. And I say, really? So you think you or I in the next few years are going to solve all the world's problems with cybersecurity and access to food and water and healthcare? And you think we're going to do it? I don't think so. So who's going to do it? Mm. The next generation. It's the, it's the farm team for the future, right? It's the farm team for America's future, for the, for the world's future, right? The world's and Dean, future. this is happening in, in a political environment where there was a very powerful image in the news where Trump was speaking at the UN about climate change and Greta Thornburg was over his shoulder, the 16-year-old Swedish activist. And there's this power dynamic. And she's been very aggressive in saying, you have mortgaged our future. There will be accountability. She's angry, right? And I, and I think rightfully angry in the same spirit of this show that there are things that, that we should be angry about. And it's about channeling that anger into positive outcomes. And that's what you've built and that's what you're doing. But you're also a leader and you set the tone and your language and your example what are your thoughts on, on the president? When you see this, this is a man who has been aggressively, I think, anti-science. You may not view it that way. But what are your views on this environment with this president? And, and just as, as a leader, what, what do you think? So I think, to me, the whole debate about whether human activity is causing all of, some of, or an immaterial amount of global warming is a fool's errand. 
it's not a question that will get an answer that can be demonstrated by doing a double blind test in another parallel universe. But why answer questions that are mostly rhetorical? I mean, as a kid, I remember being told philosophers do this and this, and I was told that philosophers look at that glass and ask, is it half empty or is that glass half full? And I remember thinking to myself, well, one half equals one half. It's a simple truism. So the fact that the English language is full of vagaries is not something we should call philosophy. Get over it. I think we should look at that glass that has half of its volume with a liquid in it and half of its volume not and say, is that safe to drink? To say, is there enough there for everybody? To say, if there's not, how are we going to make more? But answering stupid rhetorical questions, I don't have time for. In the same way, I would say, whether we're entering the next ice age or the next meltdown because of solar issues that we can't control from the nuclear furnace 93 million miles from here called the sun, whether the earth is going through a natural process, which it might go through for the next 10 years or 10 centuries, I don't know. What I do know is if it's going through that, are there things that we as as uh, inhabitants of this delicate little sphere can do to make our own lives better and at least in the foreseeable future the lives of people that come past us better. And by the way, if we could apply technologies so that, for instance, we can take photons coming from the sun and make them into directly into electricity so we don't have to drill holes in the earth, move oil, move it across a few continents, boil most of it to turn it into, put it in a truck, move it, put it in the ground, take it back out of the ground to put it in a car. You look at what we're doing and you'd say, whether humans are the primary cause of these global effects or not, it sort of doesn't matter because if we can create better jobs, a cleaner environment, a more efficient environment, a more user-friendly environment, if we can create all sorts of technologies that create jobs of the future, careers of the future, opportunities of the future that are better than they were in the past. And a fringe benefit of that is we might reduce the carbon because that might have been the primary cause of greenhouse gases being uh, so uh, devastating, at least in the short run. My, my, my real frustration is we let the politicians turn this big debate into, is the glass half empty? Is the glass half full? If that's the kind of question you want to answer, you should go off to the debating society, but get out of the way. We should have serious technology people try to figure out how to optimize what human behavior ought to be so that we can all enjoy more energy because there'll be 10 billion of us each of us needs more access to more energy without having it have a negative impact, whether it's burning down rainforests. Or, but you don't have to get into those side debates to say, are there better ways to make energy? Are there more efficient ways to move people? And by the way, sitting in traffic bumper to bumper, you know, one beautiful car like you have down there is, is a work of art. 10 million cars is a traffic jam. Right. Let's figure out better ways, more efficient ways, more fun ways, more sustainable ways to use advanced technologies to move people around, to help them communicate. And, 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 and it, it shouldn't be a 
compromise between I'll either have a cleaner world or I'll have more resources. Good engineering, good innovation allows you to do both. And in every generation, we should raise the bar by giving people a better quality of life, a longer life, and more access to sustainable futures. And technology can do that. Politics can't. Politics mm. is about a zero-sum game. You've got the oil, I want the oil, we'll fight over the oil. You've got the water, I want the water, we'll fight over You've got the land, I want the land. And politics is about dividing the world into little regions that fight over things. If you think about it, the arbitrary lines on this globe are arbitrary. If you go into space and you look at this beautiful planet of ours, you don't see the lines. Mm. So if politics has been, since it came into be, a way to divide the world, technology is a way to unite the world. And if all the kids in the next generation learn how to communicate and cooperate and be on the same team, working together, they're all going to face needs for water and food and cybersecurity and healthcare and education. Let them all develop the tool sets so that instead of fighting over this or that scarce resource, let them all create new ideas. Because the difference between a world of things, whether it's water or oil or gold, where there's a finite amount, where every time there's another person, you either have a little less per person or somebody's taking it from somebody in that zero-sum game. How about if we have a world that's not about valuing stuff. What if we have a world that values ideas? And you have an idea. You know how to cure cancer. This is the formula. I have an idea. I know how to make a more efficient, clean engine. If you give me your idea and I give you mine, that's very different than you gave me your gold, I gave you my money. You know what's different before and after that transaction? Nothing. There was a fixed amount of gold and there was a fixed amount of money. We just moved it around. But what if you gave me your idea, now we can both cure cancer. Mm. And I gave you my idea, we both have cleaner engines. The world of ideas isn't a zero-sum game. And the more smart kids we can get on this planet that are racing towards more and more and more, better and better ideas, they raise the overall value and wealth of the world. It's not a zero-sum game. And if we had a few billion kids that are racing towards solving these problems before we're overcome by catastrophe, the world would be a happy place. Mm. If we stay with a world that plays the zero-sum game of politics, we will have more and more people fighting over less and less stuff until finally we race each other to the bottom. That's not where we want to go. That's why I started first. It's an incredible assessment and prescription for the future. We've, we've had an organizer president. We've had a businessman president. Now we've got Andrew Yang, who's trying to inject te technology and, and science into, into this discussion. Maybe what we need is a scientist or an inventor president. Would you, Dean, ever run for office? <laughs> no, I, I know my limitations. And um, uh, no, um, I would love to offer what I'm good at, I think, trying to think outside the box and work hard at creating incremental uh, technical alternatives to what we do today that we could do better by integrating technologies that as, as the world, you know, I didn't invent microprocessors or solid state gyros or lithium batteries for this thing. I just systems integrated them. And some people would make video games, other people. I try to make stuff that matters. Mm. 
but but uh, I I don't so hard think, no on politics. Hard uh, no I don't, on politics. Uh, I do not think I would do well no. in the world of politics. I, I have to ask you this question because over uh, since we started this show, we've covered a lot of issues, and some of them are. Uh, kind of populist issues, things that are bubbling across the country that have people angry or, or annoyed even. And it's covered the opioid crisis, the lack of attention to uh, the war in Afghanistan. It's also covered the lack of public bathrooms. And one of my favorite and most irritating uh, subjects, the proliferation of electric scooters, which for me have become, I've called them the measles of public transportation. And, and when, when, I, when, I, when I made my case for why they've gotten out of control, now there's good things about them, but they've gotten out of control. One of the things people neglected to realize is that people in wheelchair in wheelchairs in places like D.C. have a hard time navigating them because they're just skewing across the sidewalks. But I would not, I cannot let you leave without asking you, the inventor of the Segway, what are your thoughts on the electric scooter invasion that has, that has rampaged across not just the country, but now the globe? Well, now you answered your own question why I don't want to be in politics. When I made the first Segway, and I've been forever known as the Segway guy, just for clarity, it wasn't the first balancing device, as I've told you throughout this conversation. I've spent most of my life making medical equipment, and my first application of solid-state gyros and servos and computer programs that could simulate balance wasn't for the Segway, it was for the iBot. But since it took years to get it through the Food and Drug Administration, and I wanted to get the volume that would be needed to draw price and cost down. I said, let's take the seat off this thing that is necessary for the disabled community. Take that same algorithm we developed, those same solid state gyros and accelerometers, put a platform on it, and we could make this balancing capability available for everybody else. It'll drive the cost down. It'll be one of the first things I make that people will actually want to use. People don't want to use dialysis or insulin pumps or stents or prosthetic limbs. It's nice to know they're there when you need them, but uh, nobody wants to be disabled and need an iBot, but people, perfectly healthy people, you put them on those early segues and they smile mm. and they're excited. So I made the segue for whatever reason, because it was maybe more uh, uh, potentially uh, uh, useful to a much larger population, thank goodness, than, than iBots. I'm forever known as the Segway guy. But when we made it, I said, look, this thing has motors and wheels, but it's certainly not a motor vehicle. I mean, you don't want this Segway with grandma on it in front of a bus in the middle of a city or on a highway. But on the other hand, it's probably not going to be welcomed on a sidewalk because sidewalks were made for pedestrians. So rather than flood the world with them, as you've now seen people have done, there's a whole new philosophy I think the philosophy of a lot of the new tech businesses in this country have been it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission, whether it was about privacy, whether whatever. Mm. Just big tech companies have in many ways decided, I'm just going to do it and I'm going to run at a pace that, that at best I'll ask for forgiveness. Instead, nearly 20 years ago, I went to Washington with the first Segway and said to the Nat, I went to the Department of Transportation and I went to see the secretary and I said, you don't really want to regulate this like a car or a bus or a locomotive. And he said, I don't. I said, will you give me a letter that says, although I have motors and wheels, I'm not a motor vehicle. And he said, yes. I then took it state after state because once you're not 
a motor vehicle, the feds sort of say, you're on your own. I went and said, how can we define an appropriate, safe, responsible way to integrate this technology into a, a pedestrian environment? And city after city, we went and we came up with ways to do that. It took a lot of time. It took a lot of money. Well, 15 years has gone by. And once the cost of motors and lithium battery, once the price of a lot of things got cheap enough, and once people said, I don't need them to be safe and redundant. I'll just sell them like a consumer product. They're not very safe. Mm. I wouldn't build them. Mm. They flooded the country with them without any thought about the impact on safety or, or scalability. And I think the backlash has been significant. Yeah. But, but I am not on the side that said, flood the world irresponsibly yeah. with these devices. I think there is a role for government. To me, the balance is, and maybe it's the irony, I have always tried to do it exactly right. But meanwhile, while I think a lot of these companies have pretty much said it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission, the flip side is I've been frustrated by the fact that if you come up with a radically new and better way to do something, the regulatory bodies and the, the legislative bodies don't move faster and faster. In fact, as the country gets bigger, as the amount of law and regulation keeps growing, if anything, like people, as you get older, you get more reluctant to change. As you get older, you get more risk averse. Well, a country, a culture does the same thing. Mm. So technology is moving faster and faster. Innovation is, is coming faster and faster, particularly in the medical space where I live. But getting new things approved is getting slower and slower and slower. I'm here where we are in New York. Look at your subways. You go down into this tunnel and you're standing on the edge of a concrete slab the edge of which, with no rails, will drop you three feet onto a steel rail that's at 30,000 volts or something. And every few minutes, a couple of hundred tons of steel comes racing by. You could never suggest building a thing like that today. Today, government would assume you need multiple ways to prevent anybody from being near anything that could move or could hurt them. Government has decided people aren't smart enough to avoid uh, getting in front of a moving train, rightly or wrongly. But, but we have way, way, way more risk-averse systems, which may be fine. It's a, in some cases, it's fine. But when you have a new medical advance that could be valuable to people, that would most certainly die without it, and somehow it takes many years to get it to a point where even people are allowed to use it, knowing how grim the alternative of doing nothing is, you start to think, maybe we've gone too far. Maybe the pendulum has moved a little too far away from being willing to adopt innovation. And I sit there as the guy that's trying to make innovations come faster and faster and faster, and... Uh, as in the case of the iBot, or as in the case of some of our other devices, we get, get held up for what I believe is a inappropriate amount of time getting through the political bureaucratic process. Mm. 
I'm so glad I asked you that. I could do an entire series of conversations with you on infrastructure and regulation. And I hope whoever's elected president will put you in their, in their very small cabinet to, uh, to advise on issues of regulation and tech. You could run the FDA. You could run the Department of Transportation. You'd be a tremendous asset to any incoming commander in chief. But you've been a tremendous asset to us in this conversation. There's one question I always ask all my guests that I want to finish uh, with, with you on, Dean. What makes you happy? If you ask my father, he'd say, Dean is a human irritant. And my father loves me, I think. But he says, from the time I was a very small kid, before I could communicate well with words, my parents noticed that compared to all their other kids, if I decided I was going to do something, whatever it was, I would fixate on it and nothing would distract me from it until I either did it or I finally gave up. I don't think I'm ever truly happy because I'm always trying to do the next thing and I always want it to happen better and faster. I think I'm chronically frustrated because I know I have a limited time on this earth and I want to get as much done as possible. And I used to think, well, once I do that next big thing, I'll take some time off. But if you work on that next big thing, and it's not working, you work much harder at it because mm. you're falling behind and it's expensive and people are counting on you and you don't want to disappoint people. If you work on that big thing and it works, now you have more confidence, you have more resources, you did that, you got to work on the next big thing. So either way, I'm on a train that's going faster and faster and faster and we all know where it ends and nobody's in a rush to be there. <laughs> but, but I want to get as much done and as... As time has gone by, I now have over 800 engineers in my company. So I don't have a big project. I've got half a dozen big projects and a half a dozen small projects. And FIRST has now expanded, not just to be FIRST, but we have now FIRST Global. And I have 191 countries, each sending one team to Dubai around a month from now, from October 24th till October 27th, 191 countries will each send one team to our robotics competition. And the theme of this year's Global First is called, the name of the robotics game, the field is Ocean Opportunities. And I don't want to play that same game we talked about where the politicians look for who to blame for what, and these think, oh, we'll just live in a world without plastic. Really? Try it. Or these others that think it's not a problem at all. Really? It's not a problem? They're both kicking the can down the road or they're both unwilling to look for new and better ways to make a win-win. So we said, we're going to make ocean opportunities. And you look at the game and symbolically, there's a bunch of parts in the middle of the field. And there's the three red teams on their alliance. We always randomly put the teams. So it might be three teams like countries like maybe Israel and Palestine are on the same mm. Red team and the US and Russia, maybe. but we have the three red teams and the three blue teams, and the game starts each round is two minutes. But during the first 30 seconds, all six robots the three reds, the three blues are running around that field, pulling the parts out, symbolically taking things out of the ocean. At the end of 30 seconds, the scoreboard captures how many total points were taken out, and that amount of points goes to each and every one of the six teams. Well, how can that be? That team barely got anything, and all three red teams were rookies this year in that particular random. Well, 
The reason they all get the same number of points is it's not a competition, it's a cooperation. And all these kids have to mm. recognize they're on this planet together, they're sharing, and they all have the same common goal, clean up that ocean. So all six teams symbolically get the same points. But to make it exciting, to make it a competition, to make it so that all the world gets the best of the best, during the next minute and a half, each team has to take some of these things, and if they can get them up here, that symbolizes recycling. It doubles the point count for each one of those. If they get it over here, it shows a reduction in use. And so each thing they do is symbolically showing a better way to attack a problem and a way to reward people that are innovative in coming up with better solutions. But I will have for three days the future of the world in Dubai, we will have these kids all working together, communicating and cooperating because we're going to get to them before their parents teach them how to hate each other, to teach them how to, re to literally do in the next generation what every generation before them has done around the world. This group teaches their kids their language, their culture, their religion. That group teaches them their language, their culture. And fine, you should keep all those things. Keep them at home. Have a good time. But you got to recognize there's one set of universal laws. It's called physics. We live on one big integrated planet. It's called Earth. And you guys have to live with some common understanding of all of that and then go off and do your own stuff. But you've got to stop repeating the self-inflicted wounds of your parents and your grandparents and the culture that goes back a thousand years. We've got to create the first generation of kids on this planet that recognize that we're all going to succeed together or we're all going down together. Well, I think any of us who've been able to hear you feel like we can succeed and feel like we are happier and it does sound like all of your work brings you inspiration and energy and happiness in the spirit of what your father taught you many, many years ago. And we have one final phase of our interview, which is the giving of the gifts. So you can remain in, in your iPod or, or do some tricks in it. But we've got a series of gifts that we give to all of our guests. The first I will give you is, is a slight innovation in that it is um, some Angry Americans merchandise. But it's innovative because it's made by veterans. And it's made in America, which is tough to do, super comfortable. I hope you can wear those and, uh, and, and rock them on an iBot or a Segway or any other awesome thing that you come flying by where I'm at in. And lastly, we got a couple of other gifts for you. Now, the first is uh, we were talking about all the teams. This is a color qu quiz. There are three kinds of peeps, classic peeps. Maybe, one, maybe not an innovation on the scale of what you've invented, but an interesting innovation and invention nonetheless are peeps. So Dean Kamen, if you had to choose one color, would you choose yellow, blue, or pink? I'd probably choose blue. I've been wearing blue my whole life. A very simple answer. And what, what do you think of peeps, Dean? Did you grow up eating peeps? I didn't, but um, I, it's become a, um, a phrase that people use around my little company deck all the time now because I have all my groups working on projects. Hey, how are we going to get to this? And almost a shorthand that people have, I'll get my peeps on it. And so, <laughs> and so the word peeps is used as a very positive way to say my team. I love it. Okay. And lastly, we, we have been enjoying our Guinness, but each guest, I go to a, 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 the same store each time and I'll take this and I can hold your mic for you if you want. 
Um, Shall I open it? Please do open it. Each time I choose a a, a different uh, selection um, that is inspired by the guest. And if we need to rip it open, we can rip it open. This is good for audio. The iBot does not have a knife in it, does it? Uh, I have one in my pocket. Ah, I figured as an inventor you've got one. But um, I wanted to pick a, we pick an American whiskey each time. Peerless bourbon. And I felt that this was appropriate because it's called Peerless. And it's a small batch. It is a small batch. It's made, but it, but I think your work is without peer. Well, and and you have truly been uh, an American who has shaped the, the past of this country, is shaping the present of this country, and you're shaping the future. And I've really been so humbled and inspired to know you and to be in your presence and to just see the contagious positive energy you bring to people. It represents the best of this what this country is all about. And uh, you made the best entrance we've ever had on this show. You're going to make the best exit. If there was ever a time for folks listening to go to our website and watch the video, this is it. We're going to post the video of Dean's entrance uh, on angryamericans.us. But, but Dean came in. You're an incredible guy. And I'm really honored to have you as a friend and, and excited to see what you do and thankful for all that you do for this country and for this world, man. It's been a real honor to, to chat with you. Thank you. And it wouldn't be me if I didn't give you homework. Everybody I see everywhere in the world, I give them homework. And one is always find a way to get involved with FIRST, my robotics program for kids. And don't tell me I'm not an engineer. I'm not. We need parents. We need moms and dads. We need teachers. We need corporate sponsors. We need to get a movement so that every kid in this country, every school in this country has the opportunity to have a first team, just the way they all have opportunities to have all the other sports teams. But where's the only sport where every kid on every team can turn pro? So you got to help awesome. us put first in every school. That's and awesome. the second, which is much, much more focused on what you do every day, and which is why you're one of my heroes, you need to get the community, not just the people that need iBots, but the people that need the people that need iBots, the American public that depends on our military, that ever-shrinking group of people that's asked to do so much. We need to get those people organized to make sure that these people in Washington understand this is not a luxury, it's not a toy, it's not a wheelchair, it's a piece of equipment that I think every disabled person in the 21st century that could benefit from it or to get it in the richest country in the world. But whether you debate whether everybody should get one, there should be no debate that veterans that could use this will get one. And unless we have the appropriate political pressure, it may take longer to make that happen than it took to design, develop, and invent this thing. And that would be outrageous. Here, here. All right, ladies and gentlemen, your homework has been issued. You have your marching orders. Get to work. The great Dean Kamen has, has really enlightened us and inspired us, and that will be part of your angry action this week is to follow his example and follow his orders. And with that, he will exit us uh, in, in great drama and inspiration. But Dean Kamen, ladies and gentlemen, live from the Classic Car Club in New York. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So most stuff in America is made by robots, unfortunately. And a lot of stuff in America is not made in America. Here's something that's different. Oscar Mike. If you've heard me talk about Oscar Mike before, you know the deal. But if you haven't, here's the deal. 
This is an incredibly innovative apparel and clothing company headquartered outside of Chicago, founded and created by veterans. Oscar Mike's got some really cool gear, but they've got t-shirts, sweatshirts, hats, all stuff that are designed for people all around the country. And they're affordable and they're made not by robots, but by veterans made by veterans here in America. They're some of the most comfortable shirts you'll ever try. And they got some really cool designs. There's one thing that Oscar Mike started that I really encourage you to check out, which is called the Red Campaign. Red stands for Remember Everyone Deployed. They've got shirts inspired by this. And in many places across the country, especially in many military and veterans communities, folks will wear red every Friday just as a way of remembering everyone deployed. Oscar Mike started that. But if you go to oscarmike.org, you can see the entire Angry Americans collection. They've been a massive supporter of me, of veterans, of the Angry Americans podcast, and they're doing all the merch for Righteous Media. So check out oscarmike.org. It was founded by my friend Noah Courier. Noah Courier ended up in a wheelchair himself and started this company uh, really from basically the trunk of his car with his brother and a couple of friends. So it's an inspiring American story, but more importantly, they have kick-ass t-shirts that are super comfortable and you're really going to like the designs. Oscar Mike is also donating a percentage of every sale to the Oscar Mike Foundation. They are a nonprofit and the proceeds uh, go to support injured veterans looking for an opportunity to stay active. Oscar Mike is military for on the move and they focus on the area of adaptive sports. So the Oscar Mike Foundation helps them by offering an outlet for an ongoing competitive lifestyle that helps thousands of American veterans who have sacrificed for the defense of our country. They do shit like wheelchair rugby, which is badass and lots of outdoor activities. And it's not on the website, but you should check out Noah's wheelchair. It's got treads on it and goes off road and outside of the iBot is the most amazing wheelchair slash vehicle I've ever seen. But go to oscarmike.org, check them out, tell your friends and support veterans, support America and not robots. All right, guys, we are out in the streets here in New York City for the climate strike. Greta Thunberg, the inspiring 16-year-old Swedish global activist, will be leading the protests happening around the world, and she herself will be in New York City. Kids have the day off from school, which is a genius organizing move. Whoever came up with that brilliant move. So kids are pouring in from across New York City and all around the tri-state area into Foley Square and City Hall. And then they're going to march down to the Battery, which is significant for so many reasons. But maybe most of all, because when the last hurricane hit the East Coast, the Battery was devastated. It's on the waterfront. You can see the Statue of Liberty. It's going to make a very dramatic visual but it's also a place that has a history of organizing and it's kind of a fort it's a rampart it's a place that's supposed to protect manhattan and the symbolism of that with all these kids standing up to protect manhattan protect new york protect america and protect the world is going to be tremendous uh, and a child shall lead them that's what the bible says a little child shall lead them and it's all 
kids. Like the average age is probably like 16 years old, maybe 14 years old. They've got signs. They're organized. They're diverse. They're positive. It's really, really fucking inspiring, and it's going to be an incredible day. Helicopters are overhead. You've got people literally pouring in from every form of transportation, and it's going to be really inspiring. So this is what Angry Americans is all about. These kids are angry. They have a right to be angry, and they're doing something about it. They're channeling that anger into positivity, and I'm going to continue to try to stay in the mix and bring it to you live on Angry Americans. All right, so we're in City Hall Park, continuing to cover the climate strike on Angry Americans. I'm sitting at a chess table, and uh, three folks just stepped up and said, hey, can I share the chess table with you? And we are doing that, and they're making signs. I got to tell you guys, the sign game is at a very high level today. The creativity and the awesomeness of the signs. One guy had a sign that said, it's not political, it's science, which I thought was great. Some other, you know, a lot of I miss school for this shit kind of signs. But if you don't mind, uh, tell me your name, where you're from, and why you're here. Uh, my name's Evan Pachon. I'm from Westchester, New York, and I'm here because I got an issue with what's going on in the world right now. And, uh, yeah, and it's also her, her birthday event, so double whammy. Name, where you're from, and why you're here? I'm Caroline. Uh, I grew up in New York City. I still live here, and I'm here because I think that this protest has a chance to get a lot of kids involved, and I want to be a part of that. Like, and and one more. Sorry, what's your name? Where are you from? Why are you here? Hi, my name is Ella. I'm from Westchester, New York, and. I'm here because, well, one, I care about the planet and environmental justice is really important, but two, I think that youth voices are really powerful and I'm just really excited to be a part of this. Awesome, awesome. And there's, you're texting your friends, right? Are you guys organizing right now? No, for sandwich choices, we have the vegetarian, the Reuben broccoli, or... Tell her to get whatever. Vegetarian, the John, roast beef and cheese, or veggie, corned beef broccoli. The real stuff. The this is organizing, man. You got to eat. Yeah, John. Expensive part of the city right now. Right? Should I, should I, so how did you guys get down here? Did you take the, the, the train down? Did you drive down? What did you do? Train, yeah. Public transportation. Yeah. So you have to be loud because NYPD helicopters are overhead and there's lots of kids coming through. That's all right. It's all good. So um, how old are you guys, if you don't mind my asking? Yeah, 24. I'm 23. 24. What, what do you think? You guys are coming down in the trains and coming downtown here from Midtown probably, right? Like, what, what do you think the average age is of the people who are out here today? Uh, mostly elementary and middle school students. I've seen a lot of those on, on my train at least. And then like all the uh, chaperones and adults. So and did, did, the kid, did the kids upstate get off from school today too to come to this? I don't know. All I know is... Did anyone... Yeah, the whole city did. Yeah, New York City public schools were told if you get your parents' permission, you could have off from school today, which I think was like an amazingly genius organizing move, right? So, all right, so you guys are kind of, you know, you're ordering a veggie sandwich, you're, you're drinking a mate, uh, so you're a little bit, you know, you're kind of in stereotype here, right? But tell me about your shirt, because this shirt is like fire right now this is okay well actually uh the shirt it has alexandria ocasio-cortez on it and eagles and it's probably the most patriot patriotic thing i own um turns out actually 
Evan over here, he sent me the Instagram ad for this t-shirt. I was like, that's great. I ordered it. In the mail, I got a letter from someone I went to middle school with saying, thank you for being one of my first customers. Wow. Now, it's not just Ocasio-Cortez. She's got fireworks and eagles and the New York State steel, seal and what looks kind of like the thing that goes around saints, like the glow around her. And then there's fire on the bottom. So there's a lot of, a lot of America happening right here. Right? And Yeah. And the brand of the shirt is on the back. The brand of the shirt is U.S. Congress 1919, uh, 2019 Forever. Welcome back, New York. Welcome back, New York. Welcome back, New York. Okay, so shout out to Welcome Back, New York. Cool. All right, so do you know what you're going to make on your sign, or are you still trying to figure it out? Evan, you're looking at this, man. Yeah, you I'm got your skateboard here. <laughs> I'm out here just, uh, I have a heart. I'm trying to put an earth in the middle of it, but the green, the green Sharpie isn't working, so I have a, a blue circle in the middle of a heart. And that's, yeah, I'm a, this is a part of it, man. Like, have you guys ever been to a protest before, or a strike, or a march? Many protests. So tell me about that. What other protests have you have you been to? So the first protest I participated in was when I was in 16, and it was part of a group called 99 Rise, which um, was kind of an afterthought of the Zuccotti Park protests. And with eight people, we shut down a subway station outside of Chase Bank and stood there with signs saying, like, get dark money out of politics, et cetera, et cetera, because Chase has a big part in super PACs. And six, I was 16, so I had to ask my parents' permission to go. And they said I was allowed to go protest, but if I got arrested, they would not bail me out as my punishment. So I did not get arrested. Two of my friends chose to get arrested. Uh, NBC News covered it. Chase employees sent us down granola bars in the first half an hour. It was like a great first uh, like organizing experience because I was like, oh, like you only need eight people to do a protest and shut down a subway station. Amazing. So, so you grew up like kind of around Occupy. So that was like the high point of Occupy when they had taken over Zuccotti Park yeah. and you were in high school at the time. Yeah, I actually have a crazy story about Zuccotti Park that's probably not okay to say on public record. Okay, well then you you can if you want. It's You can curse. We don't have any commercials. But if it's going to incriminate you and you're going to need to get that bail money, then you probably shouldn't do it. No. So, Zuccotti Park, it was um, on election day during the height of the protests. And me and my friend uh, from high school, we were like in Chinatown getting bubble tea and like just having a silly goose time. And then we were like, you know what? Wait, there's actually the protest over there. Let's go check it out. And we walked in and there were all these stations and like someone handed us a bowl of like free tortilla chips and like we played the bongos for a while. And then um, someone invited us like to hang out in their tent for a little bit. Uh, which is really cool to see like the inside of some of the tents in the tent city and then we heard music outside So we walked out and Crosby, Stills and Nash were doing an acoustic set right then and there Wow, yeah. so what part of the story did you think was not appropriate for sharing? Um, what we did in the tent. Ah, so what'd you do in the tent? I'm not gonna say. Okay, all right, I got. It. I'm, I'm I'm a young professional. I understand. I understand. All right, so as we're sitting here, we got a guy with a giant drum coming by. We got lots of kids and parents. Lots of signs. I'm gonna try to read some of the signs as they go by. This planet is hotter than uh, imaginary than my imaginary boyfriend. This 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 planet is hotter than my imaginary boyfriend. That's what that one said. Uh, and it's kind of cool because the waves just keep coming in. Yeah. Like waves of kids come in from different neighborhoods and different schools. Um, 
Have you been to a protest before, man? Yeah, I went to the Women's March before this, and uh, that was definitely a wild experience. I mean, this is still, this is huge, but that was like you couldn't even walk out of Grand Central, and then it was just like from, I don't know, sunrise to, sun, to sundown, you know. You went to the Women's March in New York City? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And was that the first protest or march you'd ever been to? Uh, yeah, I think like with the exception of like some little things in my hometown, which aren't really like they weren't that serious. But yeah, yeah, pretty much. So the, the question I always ask all our guests and I ask folks that I interview is because uh, the show is called Angry Americans. Uh, what are you angry about? And so I'm going to ask you guys if you are angry. What are you angry about? Oh, my God. That's that's quite the question. I feel like it's a good question, right? What am I angry about? Oh my god, man! I feel like I'm I'm angry about a lot, but in terms of like where to kind of put my energy, what am I most angry about? I mean, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go and say local government, even though I don't know enough about it, just because that's that's kind of I feel like where most of us can have our say and get actually and like actually get heard. But uh, if I'm getting angry at like you know the president and all that shit, there's really not much. Like I mean, everyone's gonna be angry about that. It's kind of just like preaching to the choir, especially in New York. So, yeah. That's a good answer, man. Thank you. What about you guys? What are you angry about? What am I angry about? Um, I'm angry that these politicians think that we can just continue status, everything is a status quo. I'm angry that they're not thinking about the everyday person and how the everyday person is going to have to struggle to survive the next 50 or 100 years. That's powerful. That's powerful. Also, that the way things are going right now will lead to only rich people surviving climate change and not like the average poor person. Um, and if you think about New York City, if you just took out every single employee who like works minimum wage, then the entire city would collapse. And it's like crazy that like people aren't more concerned about saving like the average person that drives the city. Got it. Awesome. Do you want to share what you're angry about? I'm angry about a lot. Um, I would say retweet to what both of you said, but I don't know. I'm angry about gun control. I'm angry about issues of gender justice. I'm angry that people don't take, you know, high school kids and middle school kids seriously, but we're the ones, they're the ones who are organizing this. Um, I'm angry about quite a few things, but I'll stop there. Thank you for sharing. Thank what do you guys think about Greta? You guys have seen Greta? Greta? Love her. Yeah? Are there any Greta t-shirts yet? I haven't seen any Greta t-shirts. No, I haven't seen it, but I love Greta. I, I also think that while it's important that she's like a figurehead, it's like anyone could be Greta. I think that's... Think so? Like Greta's kind of like from the future. Like Greta's powerful, man. Like she's so good, right? You, like, she is so good, but so many teenagers are that good. Do you really think so? You think so many teenagers could stand up in front of the UN and deliver like a killer speech? I think so. I work with um, like high school kids, like working to like empower high school kids and instill confidence and blah, blah, blah. But we have um, during these programs, we have like Shiro's, like these big giant posters on our walls of like people that inspire them. And like Greta is a big one. And I know she's a big inspiration for a lot of them, but I think they could definitely do that too. So Respect that. Respect that. All right. So what'd you land on here with your signs, guys? 
I got Love Earth, same same logo with the heart, and then the blue circle in the middle, and then some text on the side. I love it, man. I love it, man. Somebody, some, there was a bunch of uh, kids came by earlier, like they were chanting something like "Don't mess with my mama," basically talk about Mother Earth, and they're basically like chanting "Don't mess with my mama." There's gonna be some good chants here today. I'm looking forward. To that. Okay, what'd you guys land on for your signs? I did save our species because it's important to remember that the Earth will be fine if all the humans on Earth died. Truth. Yeah, like, yeah. like all our plastic and gas and all our pollution will just become a very tiny sedimentary layer in the geologic timescale one day. Um, so it's not really about saving Earth. It's about not fucking up our own species. Right on. Okay, and lastly, what'd you land on behind the mate can here? I can't see it. All right, so on this side, I'm going to do what we stand for is what we stand on. And then the other side, I'm going to do denial is not a policy. Powerful. Powerful. I got one last question for you guys. So given all this political context, um, among the candidates for president, where, where are your, where, where are your, your, your intentions focused right now? Or have you picked a candidate yet? Anybody? Uh, I support Bernie Sanders because I believe that he, out of all the candidates, has the highest chance of winning against Trump. I think it would be great if Warren was on his ticket because I really like Warren, but unfortunately I just don't think Warren could win alone because there's still too much misogyny in this country. What do you think about Biden? Uh, he's not exciting and he's not bringing anything new to the table. How do you how do you feel about Bernie? Do you find it at all uh, surprising that the the person you choose is as old as Trump? I mean, he's he's, he's going to be you know seventy five years old if he was elected. Does that how does Bernie transcend that gap, which for you is like a fifty year gap, right? He's fifty years older than you. Um, because Bernie has been fighting for a lot of the same rights that I believe in for the past fifty years. So while he is old, and I'm sure like someone younger could be good i think like he still believes in the things that i believe in and has still it seems like to me he has the energy to fight for these things either you guys want to chime in on your favorite candidate yeah that's a, that's, a, that's a complicated one i feel like i'm also on the bernie train but i still am i want to say I, i'm not really 100 percent yet I, I also do like elizabeth warren i do like andrew yang but there's i feel like there's some flaws within his policy um Pete Buttigieg also has a lot of good things to say, but once again, I feel like there's some like our country isn't caught up, and I mean, I feel like I just saw a crazy hate crime in the train like last week and shit like that. Just like you know, I don't. I feel like it's uh, we're in New York and we're seeing that. Just think about what's going down in the South. It's really hard. If you if you are comfortable sharing, what did you see on the train? This uh, there were these two these two guys on the train really close to each other, and this guy freaked out at him and started yell like st started yelling at them both calling them faggots and like they're what's wrong with the world and how like he they're the reason that their kids like he doesn't allow his kids on the train and it got like really wild for a sec and then everyone got him to get off the train at that stop but and it was it was really weird after that i went over to a friend's house where i just had a bunch of like lgbtq people hanging out and it just like it felt really unsettling and then you know it's just a lot it's a lot to take in so you know you have that, a lot of that shit going down so i'm just like I feel like I need some more time. I hate watching these debates because I feel like I'm also just watching just like, it just feels like more propaganda and they're just preaching to the choir once again. And then when it comes to, to Biden, I mean, he's just like a cookie cutter president. I don't see a, anything special out come out of Biden, you know? Thank, thank you for sharing. Okay, okay, Senator, what about you? What do you think? 
Well, I'm not 100% decided when it comes down to it, to be honest, because as of now, I'm going to say Warren. But like you were saying, I don't know if like in the end that vote will... I, I don't know if she could do it, like realistically because of the misogyny in this country right now. I feel like I don't want my vote to go to waste. So as of now, I'm going to say Warren, but I like Bernie as well. So I don't know if you guys saw the breaking news that Bill de Blasio dropped out today. Do you have any reaction to that? Did you know that? And do you have a reaction? I don't think that's breaking news. I think that's like an obvious conclusion to what would have happened. Well, he officially dropped out this morning on Morning Joe. He made an announcement. Yeah. I didn't care to begin with. I don't think anyone cared about that. So uh, this is a really interesting question to me because we're sitting, that's City Hall right behind us. Like, we are literally behind City Hall. The office that he's never in is right back there. Um, why do you think de Blasio, who is in some ways, you know, philosophically one of the most progressive candidates, he's local. Why didn't de Blasio connect with you guys? Why didn't de Blasio connect with us? Um, he's a lot of, oh my god, Maria, hello, sorry, someone from high school just walked by. Um, well, I think he is progressive in a lot of ways, but he's also a lot of talk and not so much walk, which is strange for a New Yorker. That's really good, that's really insightful. Anything you guys want to add, your thoughts on de Blasio? Uh, no, not, not really, I just, I, I, I didn't really do much looking into him. Uh, I guess it didn't gain, like, tra traction, but, uh, yeah, I don't really know. Okay, so we're live outside of City Hall, Paul Rykoff, Angry Americans. I'm talking to Jennifer, and Jennifer has a little one that's very little. If you don't mind my asking, where are you from, and who is this with you? <laughs> I'm from New York. Um, this is Emmett. He was born in July, so he's just over two months old. Uh, on July 6th, yeah. Wow. So Emmett might be the youngest participant in the strike that I see. I have a six-month-old. <laughs> And I think we're going to bring them out later. But I saw your sign. Can you tell folks what your sign says and why you're here? Yes, it says high school class of 2037. What world will be left? Act now. So Emmett will be graduating high school in 2037, which sounds like a futuristic time, but that's, that's real. And um, there's a lot of talk about what we're going to do by 2030 and 2050, which seem very far off. But in fact, you know, people who are alive today, kids like Emmett, who are just born, will, will be, that'll be their, that's their future. That's their life. And so we need to act. Yeah. Very proud. What do you think about this? I mean, I don't know if you grew up in New York, but this, I've never seen anything like this. And it's really inspiring to see so many young kids, like very young kids, right? Emmett's the youngest, but what, what do you think about what's happening here today? I think it's incredible and exciting. I mean, to be led by and driven by these incredible young people is really, really impressive. And I can only hope that that, that momentum is picked up by, by the rest of us, you know, by the adults. So I, we always ask folks, uh, what, what are you angry about? So, uh, Jennifer, what are, you, what are you angry about? I'm angry about the pace of change and about how slowly things are, the incremental um, change that we're seeing and I think we need to move much faster, much quicker um, and that's yeah why everyone's out today to try to make that happen. Awesome. When you were, is this your first protest and if not, when was the first time in your life you came out to a protest or a march or some other kind of political activity? That's a good question. I can't tell you the first time. I know I've been much more active in the past couple of years, 
um, since uh, the new Trump administration, since um, this is my second child, so since I, I've had kids, everything starts to seem a bit more different, you know, a bit more uh, intense. So I've definitely been out much more in the past. But this is Emmett's first protest? This is definitely his first protest, yes. <laughs> Awesome. And, ha and how old is your other child? And, and have you brought the other child to protests or marches before? Yes, he'll be three in October, and he's been to quite a few in the past couple of years. So, yes. The kids walking by are like, what do you think, they're maybe seven? Yeah, yeah. Like, there's a ton of kids. The best signs I've ever seen. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, okay, well, Jennifer, thank you so much for talking to us. Emmett, thank you. I hope you're getting a good rest. Um, but thanks for being here, and thanks for raising your voice. Thanks for doing what you're doing. So I'm in the subway terminal, uh, the subway station at City Hall. Uh, this is where the R and W trains come in. And uh, this is where a lot of protesters are pouring in from all across the city uh, and all across the tri-state area. So they're coming in to the train station. Uh, they are coming in by class or by family. And then they come upstairs and emerge in City Hall and kind of enjoy enjoying the protest. So it's pretty amazing. Uh, we talk a lot about how much our infrastructure sucks, but this is one of those examples where public transportation is kicking in and really fueling uh, this protest and, and this march happening all across the city today. So it's pretty cool to watch. Uh, young people keep getting off the train and going up through the stairs. What's up, guys? How you doing? And uh, they're going to join, you know, thousands of others upstairs. And then... Uh, the, the protest continues to grow. But a lot of diversity of age, of, of uh, race, of geography. Uh, it's really like a cross-section of New York, the tri-state area, and America. Just really seems to be uniting people in a really, really powerful way. And a lot of positivity. Like, there's no negativity at all. It's really a lot of creativity and positivity and community and unity. So coming out of the subway, it's really growing now. Uh, NYPD is coming down, and now you can see, I guess it's the actual march, the, the head of the march is coming down Broadway. I'm on Broadway uh, between Murray and Warren. City Hall is right behind me. And this is, I think, the, the head of the march coming by us right now. Uh, the cops are clearing the way. Reporters are out in front, but this uh, looks like the beginning of uh, the massive protest. I'm gonna keep recording. You got NYPD is escorting them, trying to keep traffic moving. Uh, I'm trying to see how far this goes, and it looks like it goes back at least like five, six blocks. Uh, to give you some perspective, if you don't live in New York City, 20 blocks is a mile. Uh, so you got about a quarter mile worth of people, at least, I can't see to the back, um, of folks that are coming in. There are guys with American flags. We got lots of uh, signs. I'm going to keep reading them. Denial is not a policy. You're not with them? Are you counter protesters? No, we're not protesting anything. America, awesome, awesome. So do you, want, you guys want to be on a podcast? Uh, it's about politics and news called Angry Americans. We talk to people about what they're excited about, angry about, interested in. So you guys are here, three American flags. Where are you from? We're from Brooklyn. From Brooklyn? And what are your names? Uh, Daniel. Nathan. 
John. And so you guys are not part of the protest, but you got American flag. So here to show that we love America. Awesome. And ask people if they love America. Awesome. Why do you love America? Because it's the greatest country in the world. Despite its issues, it's still the best. But every country. What What do you think is the second best country in the world? That's difficult. Um, you see, that's actually a very difficult question. Japan, I'd say Japan. I don't know why, to be honest. I haven't been there that many times. Have you been to Japan? Once. once. Okay, got it, got it. And, and you, sir, what's the second best country in the world? Uh, I'll say Israel. It's a tough one. I'm helping you guys out, right? Because someone might ask you. What's not a tough question? No. What the f best country in the world is? <laughs> it's a complicated question, right? Like right here. A lot of people have different opinions, but at the end of the day, everyone has their own. Do you, do you feel like a lot of people don't like America? Is that why you... you why, wh I feel like a lot of people in this city would say that they don't think America is the greatest country in the world. And I just don't understand why they... Because they're living in the country. That's pretty ironic. So, so if they don't think America is the greatest country in the world, what do you think they should do? I have no I idea. They should look back and appreciate how lucky they are to be in this country. Should they leave? Uh... I don't think they should leave because then they'd just be worsening their lives, in my opinion. So, what are you guys going to do? Are you going to hang out and watch and then are you going to go downtown later? Yeah, we're just going to keep walking with them. Just walk, walk around, watch. People from other schools that we know are here too, so we're just... So, did you, how old are you guys, if you don't mind my asking? 16, 17. And did you get off from school today? Yep. And what do you guys think about that? Uh, I mean, I don't mind. Yeah? Yeah, it's the best part. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, do you think, uh, did everybody at your school not go to school today, or is there some, like, really studious kid who's there studying math right yeah, now? Many. But yeah. there was a mass exodus from our school. So did they give you the whole day off, or did you have to go in the morning and then you... First, first couple periods, at 10.30. Like, 10.30 we left. And you guys are in Brooklyn, you said? Yep. So, public school in Brooklyn? Yep. High school, the biggest country, big, biggest one in the country. It's a pretty good school, too. Yeah, it is. Yeah. One of the best schools. Is it the, is it the best school in New York City? Uh, no. Stuyvesant? Stuyvesant, yeah. So Stuyvesant, Bronx Science. So you guys would be basically Japan. Right? So if we were ranking countries and ranking high school, right? If, if, yeah. I could have gotten to Stuyvesant, but we chose to go to Brooklyn Tech because it's a lot more convenient, and I just thought it'd be an easier load. Awesome. awesome. But for the people that are trying to get to work or they're like just peacefully walking, like, uh, like I feel bad. You think this is disrupting them quite a bit? A hundred percent. They're disturbing the peace. Yeah. You think that maybe they're happy they get a day off with their kids? Uh, um, work. Yeah, yeah. If they don't have to work. So you guys, uh, not, I'm, I'm very curious about this conversation because a lot of what we talk about on my show is patriotism, and that means a lot of different things to, to different people. But how do you guys feel like you express your love for America? You guys love America, you know. You're how much do you love America, and and how do you show it? Uh, well, it's kind of hard to express. Like if I just say I like the American flag or I carry around the American flag, people are gonna attack me. You think so? Nobody's attacking you right now. No, but... I came over and wanted to talk to you for a podcast. I understand, but if I wear, like, a MAGA hat or something, I will definitely get attacked. But that's a different thing, right? Like, do you think a MAGA hat and an American flag are the same thing? No, no. But, like, if they wear something, I'm not going to attack them. I want to go peacefully talk to them and, and have a good conversation. What if they wear a hat that says, fuck America? Well, I, I, don't, I don't think they should wear that hat. Why are they here if they don't like the country, you know? Maybe, maybe, maybe they want to make it better. I think they should have freedom of speech because no matter what they say, they, you should, even if I don't agree with you, I will still defend your freedom of speech. But I, I just, if I don't agree with them, I would rather have a peaceful conversation with them. This has been a very peaceful conversation, I think, right? So, but I want to go back to the question. So, if you love somebody, you got a boyfriend, girlfriend, you show them your love, right? Yeah. You find ways that you love your grandma, you love whoever you show. So, how do you show your love for America? 
uh, I plan on voting in every election once I turn 18, which would show some sort of support. Cool. And I'll just, if people say that they don't like America, I'll ask them why. And if, like, I think all of us will try to be as successful as possible to make this country better and do what's good for the people. Try to. Make that was a tough one, huh? I gave you tell you're thinking about this one, yeah, right? That's a different question. Huh? Can you answer that question? Sure. You want to know how I love America? Yeah. I went in the military for ten years. Really? Yeah, that's one way, right? Where'd you serve? Iraq, Europe, all over the place. Yeah, but I'm not some dude who's preaching at you guys, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot. I mean, that's one way. It's not the only way. I vote. You know, I'm here today. I think this is this is showing patriotism, right? My radio show and and my podcast are a lot about asking tough questions and we talk to people who are Republicans, Democrats and everybody in between. That's a big part of what we try to do is bring people together. So it's a, it's a pretty interesting day, right? Yeah, yeah. it is. What are you going to do when you get done with high school? Uh, probably college. Yeah. College, yeah. College, 100%. Do you guys think about joining the military? Uh, no. Why not? You don't love America? No, I do love America, but I feel like I could benefit better in another way. Got it, got it. What, what, what way do you think will benefit America better? Yeah, I think I could provide jobs for people. I could. What, what kind of business are you interested in? I mean, I want to become something in medicine, so I'm going to be helping people Excellent. like that way. Well, if I hope if, if I get sick, your guys around. Did I drop so I got a B? Thank you, guys. If you love America, get rid of that B. Right? <laughs> Keep those flags off the ground, guys. Don't let them touch. You know flag protocol? You know flag protocol? What's your opinion on on what? On the, this whole climate thing. I think it's awesome. I think it's awesome. I mean, I think most of all, I think it's awesome that that people are out. There's a lot of positivity. People give a shit. They're involved, right? Like, that's the thing for me. And I got kids, and uh, I'm deeply concerned about the planet. And I don't think I don't think that's a partisan thing. I think Republicans, Democrats, everybody kind of cares about the planet now. Yeah. You know? You know, there's different ways to approach it, but I don't think anybody thinks, like, Dumping toxic waste on the ground is a good thing. No. What about a general question: Where do you side politically? Independent. Independent. Yeah. What, what about what about what about you? Uh, well, you think Andrew Yang is independent? No. Yeah. So, what about you guys? How do you describe yourselves politically? Um, probably center right. Yeah. Yeah. I was same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think there are many center right people in New York? No. Uh, I think there are more than people would imagine. But they just don't speak out as much. So who do you guys, do you, have you guys chosen who you're going to vote for yet? Because you'll be 18. Well, you'll be 18. You guys will not be 18. But if you're 18, do you know who you're going to vote for? Uh, I would say Donald Trump. But, I mean, we still have to see who the other candidates are. What is it about Trump that, that, that gets your vote? I mean, he's the best of the bunch for now. And what he's done so far, I mean, America hasn't gotten any worse. Except for the social aspect where people are dividing each other, arguing about... Like, is Trump bad? Is Trump good? And they, like, hating on each other. But, I mean, not a lot of students in our school do that. At least the people that I'm friends with. So. Who you, if you guys could vote, you, will you be 18? I will. Yeah. I'm going to vote Donald Trump. Also, uh, why are you going to vote for Donald Trump? Okay, I'll explain. He's actually, he's done a lot of good things. For example, black unemployment and Latino unemployment is at its lowest that it's ever been in the history of this country. He's added hundreds of thousands of jobs to this country and uh, he cares and he supports things that I support for example legal immigration so that we accept people into this country that have a clean background that we can accept that won't disturb the peace for example 
What about you, man? Do you, you decide who you're voting for? Yet? Yeah, probably Trump. It's not. It's less that. It's less the fact that he's like the greatest president of all time. It's more the fact that he's the best out of the bunch. If okay, so I'm going to ask you a tough question again. If Donald Trump has a God, you know, God forbid, he has a heart attack, right? And you had to vote for someone else, who would you vote for? Because this is a tough question, right? Like I asked you, you know, you said America's the greatest country in the world. What's the second greatest, right? So if you have an evaluation mechanism, what, who, if you had to pick somebody else, who would you vote for? That's a tough question. I conservative side. Anybody. You could write in Mickey Mouse if you want. You got a bathing ape shirt on. You could, you could, you know, write in a bathing ape if you want. That's America. Uh, that's, that's a tough question, actually. I'd have to think about that. Tough one. All right. Well, you guys think on it. Think that's a tough one, right? But it might be reality, right? What about the other Republican candidates? You guys know about Bill Weld or Joe Walsh or some of the other guys who are running on the Republican side? I uh, mean, I've yeah, I've looked into some of, uh, some of it, but like at the end of the day, everything Trump has done so far, I mean, nothing's gone wrong, so might as well stick to it. Got it. Got it. Cool. Uh, thank you guys for talking to me. Appreciate it very much. Glad to see you guys out here. Oh, it's Greta. So Greta's on stage now. This is pretty cool. She's already become kind of a folk hero. But Greta is now on stage in New York City. One thing that's cool is there's actually some really, really articulate, well-prepared young activists. This entire generation knows how to talk on television. They're all recording themselves. They're all setting up the shot. They all have heard their own voices recorded. This generation knows how to do media. And even the ones that aren't good at it are probably better than the ones 20 years ago who were good at it. All right, we're going to wrap up here from New York City. Now we're really ending. Paul Rykoff, Angry Americans, live on the streets at Climate Strike 2019. Okay, it's time to turn that anger, sadness, frustration, inspiration, agony into positive impact, especially this week. It's time to be a helper. Just like so many people are in Dean's camp, and all around the country, it's time to be a helper, especially when times are tough. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. And every show, I offer you a way to convert your righteous, understandable anger into positive action. Positive action that shows angry Americans can also be impactful Americans. An action that will channel your energy, make you feel good, and will make a difference. And just like our show, the actions are always packed with the four eyes: Integrity, information, impact, and inspiration. And this week again, don't be a robot. Be a helper. And be a nerd. And support the nerds. 
It starts with recognizing and supporting the power of science and recognizing that nerds are cool. Nerds are important. Nerds are needed. Nerds are the future. I'm a nerd. Always have been. And I'm proud of it. Uh, I just wanted to, to say that, that I'm a nerd. And I'm here tonight to stand up for the rights of other nerds. And a great way to be a helper is to support Dean Kamen's inspiring and incredible charitable nonprofit organization called FIRST. FIRST is the world's leading youth-serving nonprofit that advances STEM education. This will create a generation of scientists, of mathematicians, of engineers. Throughout our history, great civilizations have risen, then fallen. Now it's our turn to rise, building and bolstering our own planetary metropolis. And that's what RISE does. For this 2019-2020 season, First Rise is powered by Star Wars, Force for Change, and it's setting out to inspire citizens of the galaxy to work together, strengthening and protecting the force that binds us and creating a place where collaboration and collective wisdom can elevate new ideas and foster growth. You heard Dean talk about it. They have a Lego League Junior for kids grades kindergarten through four. They have the first Lego League uh, elementary and middle school students. That's grades four to eight. They have a first tech challenge. Teams of middle and high school age students are challenged to design, build, and program a robot to play a floor game against other teams' creations. And then nine through 12, the first robotics competition. High school age teams compete head to head on a special playing field with robots they have designed, built, and programmed. This is badass. So how can you get involved? Go to firstinspires.org, firstinspires.org. That's the website. You can also find them everywhere on social media. You can sponsor, you can donate, you can volunteer, you can advocate. There's also a first AmeriCorps VISTA program and a first senior mentor program. So this is really an incredible way for people of all generations to come together and help our children become amazing, inspiring scientists or just have a basis for science that will serve them for the rest of their lives. An amazing twist. After I recorded this show with Dean in the Classic Car Club Manhattan's innovative and really dynamic driving simulation room, the guy came up to me afterward, a young guy in his 20s, and said, you know what? I was in FIRST when I was a kid. He was inspired by being a part of FIRST, and now he's working in technology. He's really inspired, and it all started with FIRST. So go to firstinspires.org, be a part of this movement, and recognize that if you're not loving the NFL or you do love the NFL, FIRST is like the NFL for science and technology and engineering and math, and it's awesome. So be a helper. Be a nerd. Help other nerds. Make more nerds. Nerds of the future. And they're going to save the world. And if you got a story to tell or a resource to share, find us on social media and use the hashtag AngryAmericans and let me know. Don't just be angry. Be active. All right, big thanks to a few folks that helped make this episode happen. First off, Dean Kamen. He is an incredible human being, an incredible educator, and it's an honor to know him. And I was thrilled to have him uh, be in New York. And right after Dean left us, he did an event 
where he gave away two iBots, and he gave one of them to Colonel Greg Gadsden. He's a retired U.S. Army uh, garrison commander at, at Army Fort Belvoir. He's a bilateral, above-the-knee amputee. He's an actor and motivational speaker, and you may have also seen him in Battleship with our friend Pete Berg from the previous episode. But Dean Kamen gave away two iBots. He's going to continue to give away iBots and try to push to empower veterans and so many other kinds of folks to have their lives change with an iBot. I've seen it in action. Stay tuned. But big thanks to Dean and Julie Sharon and his entire team at DECA. They're awesome people. Big thanks to my team, creative Chris Rosenthal, Mighty Mercy Rich, excellent Eric Schonborn. Uh, They've all been really cranking it, Righteous Media, and they're operating like the coolest robot on the planet. Uh, They create our website, our graphics, all our kick-ass videos. Um, Also, big thanks to Bill Schultz. He's a machine. He produced this episode. He's an audio magician, a true genius, and I'm very thankful for him. Big thanks to Roy Velchek. He shoots all our videos. If you haven't seen the videos of past episodes or you want to see the one with Dean, go to angryamericans.us. Go and check out Dean in action. We'll post video of him climbing stairs in the iBot. It's not a wheelchair. He refuses to let me call it a wheelchair, but you can watch Dean climb the stairs at the car club, shake my hand, give me a hug, and the car club's got some pretty cool vehicles ferraris lamborghinis all kinds of amazing stuff but they've never had a vehicle that is more innovative and more expensive than the ibot so go to angryamericans.us check that video out shot by roy velchek big thanks to oscar mike our awesome merch partners check out all the new designs at angryamericans.us now and thanks as always to my family my amazing wife and my two boys we are still working on the halloween costumes We had an inspiring late birthday party for my son Ryder this weekend, and we did it at the Intrepid Airspace and Sea Museum. If you've never been there, I strongly recommend you check it out. Bring the kids. We got to see the actual space shuttle that they have there. Lots of military history, but it's great for science, technology, engineering, and math. If you're ever in New York, go check it out. There's also the Midway out in San Diego and other aircraft carriers around the country that are really science museums. So big thanks to the folks over there and thanks to my family. I will also tell you that every year at Ryder's birthday party, I wear a costume. Yes, I surprised the kids, and I wear a different costume. And I went in and tried to find one that was space-themed. Options were limited. So, long story short, Master Chief. Master Chief made a special appearance at Ryder's birthday party. The kids were excited. They thought he was an astronaut for the future. Most of them haven't played Halo. But Master Chief did make an appearance, and you can see that if you look for my social media as well. But big thanks to Master Chief for the inspiration. Uh, finally, my thanks to you, dear listeners, for tuning in. Don't be a robot. Tell your friends to check out this podcast. Share it far and wide. If you're on an Apple device, please leave the show a quick review. It only takes a minute. And check out angryamericans.us. Lots of great resources, video, and you can share all these episodes and the previous episodes all across social media. And keep the feedback coming. I see you. I hear you. I'm with you. And then in the next couple of weeks... We've got some really, really cool, surprising, inspiring interviews. I just recorded one tonight that I'm not going to tell you about, but go to our website and go to my social media at Angry Americans, and you can guess the guest. I'll show you a sneak preview of what the interview set looks like, and you'll see a shot of our guest from behind. And if you guess the guest, you'll win a special Angry Americans prize. Trust me, it'll be cool. Until then, stay tuned, subscribe for free. It's 100% free. Remember that and share. And we'll keep this movement growing week by week. 
And remember, it's okay to be angry. No, you're not alone. We're not robots. We're all a little angry. And that's because we're paying attention. And together, we can turn that vigilant anger into positive impact. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Stay vigilant, America. Stay vigilant. Stay vigilant.